of the other side of midnight where anything can happen as I'm going to tell you shortly well we're preparing to go back to the moon and NASA has now selected officially the 13 potential landing sites for the Artemis 3 mission which will not take place for like what two three years maybe Maybe in 2025, the original target, as you know, way, way back when was 2028. And then after we sent uh, President Trump his uh, background, backgrounder and all the artifacts all over the solar system, the presidential briefing, which, of course, is going to, as things continue to happen with the ex-president, it's going to become historic. It's going to become a uh, keepsake, and you can get a copy of what was sent directly to the president, I think kicked off a series of very interesting developments, and I may have time to go into that this evening, or I may have to wait until next week. Good night. We're going to do three hours of me solo discussing the Artemis One mission, and much more important, what there is on the moon for them to find. much more. And this mission, even though it's unmanned, carries a slew of state-of-the-art, digital, high-resolution, high-def cameras, digital cameras. And NASA is planning, according to their press conferences and their updates, they're planning to do a lot of live videos, downlinking live to the Internet, to NASA TV, and some of those images. Some of that video, to, uh, particularly as TV. the angle changes and between some of the spacecraft, some of the moon, video, and the sun, given the orbit that they're going to be in, some of those images are unquestionably going to show the extraordinary panorama of ancient glass ruins on the moon. That is a flat 100% prediction. Now, the thing that will interrupt that is if NASA does not transmit this data live, which they've already said that certain times they will not be able to because of bandwidth issues. I mean, come on. Literally a quarter million miles away from Earth, we've got the DSM stations, which have these huge, you know, 70-meter dishes, which is over 230 feet, and they're claiming they don't have enough bandwidth to transmit live video with state-of-the-art 21st technology, 21st century technology from the moon? No, that is a built-in hold, as they used to say, in the count, so they can look at the footage, because they obviously know what is there. And to a first order, they are trying to, I guess, prevent us from seeing it. And that will only work up to a certain point. So this is going to be a very fluid situation, uh, kind of as fluid as tonight. So, so let me kind of go through the news items, and uh, I will tell you right now tonight. that we may so be at the bottom of the hour, we may be going to calls, 
and because I will tell we you cannot right now, find our guest. Neville Thompson is supposed to be the guest tonight. He is the guy who does extraordinary gigapans. He takes NASA data and has made it accessible to literally millions of people around the world. And when we had to recycle the count from last Sunday, when I talked to him on Skype and uh, told him, asked him if we could delay till tonight, Saturday night, uh, he said yes. And he uh, had a mother and his family who had these horrible migraine headaches, which I get, and nothing touches it. Uh, nothing I've tried. And believe me, I've tried a lot of things. So we agreed to delay the count until tonight. And I think we exchanged one email kind of midweek. He sent me something to look at, which is very interesting. And tonight, um, he's unavailable. And we're not quite sure why. So it may be Tonight, that um, at the bottom of the hour, um, sure we have why. to go to call. So, so it may give be you the phone number. Just in case hour, we're going to open uh, the lines and just spend three hours or two and a half having a conversation. Kind of about anything you want to. I mean, the world is blowing up in several different quarters. This is part kind of, of the times we live in. So we can talk about that, we can talk about specifics, we can talk about all the stuff that's out there for NASA to someday find, given that, of course, we know they already know. We can talk about the bizarre psychology among the Mars teams at JPL, both the Curiosity and the Perseverance team, because they're immersed in ruin, as far as the eye can see, except nobody over there seems to see anything. And in any population, you know, it's kind of like a Gaussian curve. You know what a Gaussian curve is, or or what they used to say more colloquially, a bell curve. Um, there's always going to be the stragglers to the far left and to the far right, or vice versa, at the ends of the curve. In other words, those people that do not follow the main bulk of the population and who are revolutionaries, who are outliers. Why does not one of them break cover, do what Snowden did, take a whole sun drive full of stunning artifacts on both the moon and Mars, and simply put them out there, hold a press conference, or call the New York Times, or in other words, do something. And the mystery is, and Ron and I have discussed this extensively, why does nobody break cover? Why does nobody break silence? And we've had long discussions with Andrew, Andrew Curry, who is one of our uh, team, uh, who has a degree in psychology and who has read on the air a number of the bios of these people. They are exactly the kind of people who were looking for exactly the kind of stuff that we have found, that we found decades ago. And yet none of them, not one stands up and says, wait a minute, look at that. That cannot be natural. And remember the model. It only takes, as the old Apaches out here used to say, it only takes one white crow to prove crows aren't black. Well, we've got coveys and coveys of crows. Can you have a covey? No, you have a covey of, of witches, I think. Um, what is it, a flock of crows? Um, there's probably... Uh, I know it's a gaggle of geese. Um, anyway, we've, we've got more white crows than you can count uh, on both hands. And nobody 
inside the agency says anything. Nobody. And there's no discussion. There's no there's not even discussion in the dark, dark, dark recesses of, of the of the web. And this of course, when it is acknowledged by the population as a whole. And it doesn't take a lot of people in the right place to create the viral firestorm that will occur when it is unmistakable that we are surrounded by ancient stuff built by somebody. My model is that it's us. It's not aliens. It's not guys from Alpha Centauri or Sirius or, uh, you know, the third star in the uh, belt of, of Orion. It's it's us, our great, 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 great grandmothers with some stuff which is much, much older and incredibly extraordinarily interesting and of scale and technological magnitude that fully, fully um, affirms Arthur C. Clarke's third law, which is, in case you guys forgot, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Well, whoever raised the structures that we're going to see, as Tennessee Ernie Ford used to say, God willing, the creek don't rise, um, is obviously completely absent from any of the NASA people who look at these pictures day and night, night and day, who live with them, who are immersed in them, who are talking about them constantly, who have huge pictures in the corridors of JPL, because you've seen the uh, documentaries, where they put blow-ups of the most spectacular imagery in full, blown-up print form, which is very expensive. I mean, you know, uh, prints that are six feet long and three feet high or four feet high, I mean, they spare no expense to immerse themselves in this experience, not just looking at a screen. And yet nobody... Nobody in JPL over the decades since the first evidence, real evidence that we are not alone and there's stuff on Mars, nobody blows the whistle. There have been no Snowdens in NASA forever. And, you know, the the few people that have made kind of mumbles about UFOs, no, that's not about data that you up to and including the President of the United States can check. And remember how we began the presidential briefing for uh, President Trump. Right at the top, we said, and at the bottom, at the end of the three-hour video, we said again, all you have to do, Mr. President, is pick up the phone and call your NASA administrator and tell him to get down here in half an hour and bring the damn photograph showing the ruins with you. And he never did that. Or... Did he do it, and they're part of what was in the boxes at Mar-a-Lago? I mean, that's a whole huge discussion. So if you want to uh, join us, and if we have to go to calls, it uh, would be very useful. We'll open the lines at the bottom of the first hour here if we can't find Neville. And so far, Keith is having no joy in finding uh, Mr. Thompson. So the number, if you want to call us, 917-889-8802. That's 917-889-8802. And yes, I am absolutely fascinated to learn two critical things 
about the FBI search uh, of Mar-a-Lago. One, what did Trump think he was doing, taking over two dozen boxes, a lot of which contained top secret and special access program files with him when he left the White House? And so far, we've had zero answer on that very simple question. What were you doing? And number two, what was in the boxes? Did, in fact, he take with him the critical information on what's in the solar system and who is out there interacting with us, like the breakaways or like, um, you know, real ETs or folks dropping by from Sirius? Because there is a very deep, I believe, in our history, serious connection, uh, which is one of the places in what I call the great solar system diaspora that our great ancestors had to flee after the huge celestial interplanetary war that broke out in this system, as I'm putting it now, roughly 66 million years ago. And so next Sunday night, a week from tomorrow night, for three hours, I'm going to lay out specifically focusing on the moon with stunning imagery, both from NASA, from ESA, from the Japanese, from the Indians, and from Earth-based photography, video, motion pictures, and film. I'm going to show you how you too, with nothing compared to a 20-plus billion dollar national space program, you too can independently verify that there are indeed ancient, extraordinary ruins on the moon. They are so democratically accessible to anybody that wants to look. So part of next Sunday night will be devoted to um, how to look, what the sources are, how you access the data, what you look for, the physics background to why what you're seeing is real and not a chimera or a trick of uh, light and shadow. So my item number one, and for those of you who are new to the show, um, what you want to do is go to the section we call Radio with Pictures, which I freely stole from RKO. Remember, we almost had a movie deal at RKO. Maybe some of you don't know that. That's, that's something I might get into later tonight, given that I have three hours to fill and there's no Neville Thompson yet. Anyway, uh, if you go to the other side of midnight.com and click on tonight's banner for the 20th of August, 2022, the banner which says a citizen scientist on Mars, the Neville Thompson story, maybe he went to Mars. I'm kind of, you know, with tongue in cheek. Anyway, what you want to do is you want to click on that banner that will take you to Neville's guest page. And right under the similar banner at the top of the guest page, you will see fast links to items. You want to click on my name, Richard, and that will take you to the section down the page, means you don't have to scroll, um, where I have my items. And number one is the Artemis moon rocket. It has now arrived back at the launch pad, 39B, ahead of the historic mission, which is planned for next Monday. Two days and a week from now, Monday morning at 8.33 
um, a.m. Eastern Time, 7.33 uh, a.m. Central Time, which, of course, is uh, um, Houston Time, uh, and the mission will be controlled as all human uh, occupied spaceflight are, and this is a, you know, end-to-end New Haven test, a trial of the SLS, which stands for Space Launch System, Artemis One mission to the moon uh, for six weeks. The plan is if they get to leave at 7.33 Houston time, which, by the way, if you're looking at it symbolically, that's 19.5. Because 733 is 1933. And, of course, in this coding, you forget AM and PM. Um, And, again, there are a number of 19.5s built into this mission, which we will go through in some detail next Sunday night. I guarantee you, you're going to see things and hear things all put together in terms of what they, meaning NASA, has been hiding for over half a century Uh, that you have never heard before next Sunday night. And I'm deep in the process of production. And our problem, of course, is that we have the, uh, what what my grandmother used to say is the poverty of riches. We have too much stuff. So I'm winnowing, winnowing, winnowing. What What will stand out? What will be a signal in the noise? What will people easily see who have no background in looking at NASA imagery Uh, or digital imagery, although we use cell phones and smartphones and take tons of pictures, how many ever stop to analyze? I mean, really deconstruct what's in your digital social media files. Not very many people. We just take it all for granted. We point and shoot and we click and we open and we close and we get rid of and we cancel and we, nobody does a deep dive into how does this stuff appear on a screen. Well, part of next Sunday night is going to be a tutelage in how you need to look at this stuff to understand what it is you're seeing. Because I think a major problem on the part of not NASA, not the NASA personnel, but the general population is that most of us have never had training in how to look at any of this stuff. We don't know what is, quote, normal and what is abnormal to us who always seem to have our heads down or on our screens, um, we're not looking up. We're not looking at the bigger context. We're not looking at how do you look at these things. So um, if you click on that link, uh, item number one, that will take you to an update from the Artemis blog on the uh, uh, NASA headquarters website. And that image, which is your entry point to the same information, That's a photograph taken in the pre-dawn hours a couple, three days ago. I think it was on Tuesday or Wednesday that they rolled the uh, Artemis stack, as it's called, which includes the two solid rockets, five segments, the core stage first and second stage, and, of course, the service module and the spacecraft, the command module, the crew module of the Orion spacecraft itself, all there stacked on the uh, crawler along with the what's called the launch service tower which is that thing just to the right of the rocket which has all the pipes those pipes literally carry hydrogen and oxygen in liquid form and they're used to refuel and to top off the tanks uh, 
um, just pre prior to launch before the valves are closed and the tanks are pressurized and you're in the terminal count. Anyway, all that where we are in terms of the rollout and the checkout that will begin, I think I think the actual countdown began tonight, um, I think, or is it, is it next Saturday? They have a very long count for this one because this is the first time we're actually going to launch this sucker and it's going to depart uh, for the moon. Okay, that's item number one. Um, again, the way to utilize these resources, which are kind of like, uh, as we used to say in the network business, bank pieces, meaning things that you can turn to when you uh, are uh, having not, not much to do and you want to kind of background yourself in the subject uh, during a live show for a lot of people, they prefer to listen as opposed to scroll and look and read because you really can't read and listen at the same time. So we leave these things up there permanently after the, the live broadcast and they become part of the archive of the, of the show in Club 19.5. And I probably at this time should say a word about Club 19.5. As you may have noticed, we do not have commercials on the show, although we've been approached by people over the years, and I, I really do not want to get into the iffy market of, you know, supplements and, you know, snake oil and the stuff that's readily looking for airtime. Um, actually, at one point very early in the show, we were trying to get the, the My Pillow guy to come on and sponsor uh, The Other Side of Midnight, um, and we actually had someone on our behalf talking with someone on their behalf and I'm not quite sure why the conversation broke down. Uh, it may have been for financial reasons. It may have been for political reasons because I did not learn until somewhat later um, Mike Lindell's views. And I, uh, you know, in hindsight, probably when I learned of them, I probably would have said to Mike, thanks, but uh, no thanks. Anyway, um, so if you, if you, uh, look at the, the, the wide spectrum of the stuff we're trying to do. Um, next weekend, I'm going to be delving into not only the background of Artemis, but also a little more detail on what I think happened vis-a-vis -vis the president, President Trump, to the presidential briefing. Because when those boxes came to light at Mar-a-Lago, when I kind of looked at some of the things that he said in his inaugural address, in 2017, on uh, January 20th of 2017, things that never came to pass having to do with space, with energy. Remember, this is a guy who was a favorite. I'm talking about President Trump now. He was a favorite of his uh, uncle, uh, John Trump, at MIT, who was a brilliant genius physicist, and apparently he and Donald hung out. Uh, and, and the president has made many references uh, on the public record to his famous uncle, the physicist. In fact, uh, way back when he was running for uh, president, uh, the subject of nuclear weapons came up and he made the comment that, well, I know a lot about nuclear because, you know, I hung out with my uncle. And of course, his uncle was involved in fundamental nuclear research, high energy physics. He built... Uh, accelerators using high voltage to accelerate atomic particles and have them collide with other atomic particles, 
which is how physics has progressed in many directions since the 1940s. So is it possible that the reason that the president took all these boxes, including, according to the inventory that was released from the Justice Department, uh, many sets of uh, top secret compartmentalized programs, uh, which of course includes programs listed as special access, which are so secret and so deep, deep, deep black that even the Congress does not know uh, what they're funding. And that's another very long discussion and uh, program at some point. Um, is it possible that in amongst all that material, there in fact are secret memos from the CIA and from the NSA and from the NSC, which is the National Security Council, which is supposed to be the advisory group to the president directly there in the White House. Actually, they're over in the uh, executive office building. Concerning ruins on the moon, potential current occupation of current bases on the moon, and by whom? And did the president, when he left the White House, finally, very, very grudgingly, did he take some of that material with him? Is that part of what's in those boxes? And when someone realized, after a year and a half of discussion and tea and conversation and friendly visits and all of that, because remember, the FBI did not go and search Mar-a-Lago the day after someone discovered the stuff was missing. It's been a year and a half. Who else in the United States, if they had taken top secret material or any documents out of the, the official government files that is illegal under several statutes, who else would be in simple, polite conversation over a year and a half except a former president of the United States? But what if in some form during those long, long conversations? What if someone actually said, oh, my God, look at what he's got? In other words, the story in the Washington Post in this particular vein might be a euphemism. Uh, remember, the Washington Post wrote a, wrote a story, according to sources, that some of the documents pertain to nuclear weaponry and strategy and you know nuclear posture. And we don't know whether it's ours or some other third world government or some other government, not just third world. Um, what if, in fact, the post story of nuclear is merely a euphemism for the kind of stuff that no individual, including an ex-president, should ever have access to on a daily basis and able to kind of promote it around the world? And does it, in fact, relate to special access programs which are um, uh, so top secret that even the handful of people who are read in on them are literally um, profiled and given lie detector tests, electro, uh, what do they call those things, uh, and cellography, and cellography, in other words, you know, truth detectors, lie detectors, to tell if they're telling the truth about not speaking a word or, you know, taking physical 
you know, material, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, well, we're coming down to the bottom of the hour. There is no joy yet on Neville Thompson. So what we'll do is we will continue with my rundown on tonight's uh, news because it kind of all relates to my hopefully um, soon-to-be conversation with Neville Thompson. And so far, we've had one person call in. If you want to join the conversation after I finish with the news, the summary of things that are going to be extremely relevant in the last few months of 2022, and I'll explain the strategy for why this year seems to be the triggering year for the D word, disclosure. Anyway, um, we'll get to all of that uh, when we return, but what I thought I would do tonight in honor of Neville is we're going to be playing some clips from the soundtrack to The Martian. And I had a chance while I was working on next weekend, I had this playing in the background and I was kind of noting, you know, the various cuts and things that appear to be really interesting in a audible form. So this is uh, Mars from The Martian. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland, and I, if no one else, will shortly return. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Thank you. 
And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Saturday, August 20th, 2022. And this is an anniversary. Actually, this is a very interesting anniversary, which I will get to when I reach uh, another couple of news items. So, again, still no joy on Neville Thompson. I see more people signing up. Remember the phone number if you want to talk to us tonight. And we're going to open it up to any – we haven't done this in a very long time, and frankly, it's my fault because I'm kind of – what I'm trying to do is structure these shows so that we're not just kind of interviewing a random author here or, you know, someone else there. That there's kind of a message of our madness. There's a there's a methodology. There's a an actual plan in the run up to going to be, I believe, an extraordinary end of the year for disclosure. And I'm not talking about UFOs and UAPs and things that go flitting around over aircraft carriers and uh, nuclear weapon sites and all that. I'm uh, I'm talking about uh, the things that are in our control, which is the reaching out through our official space agency and finding the physical evidence, which is checkable by anybody in any space program in any nation on the planet, that in fact we have never been alone. And there's an extraordinary history to the human species which is so dazzling and so extraordinary compared to all the stuff we think we know about the mere last 6,000 years that I guarantee you next Sunday night, if I do this right, if I lay out the evidence properly, it will knock your socks off. So let me now turn back to the news that we're doing basically here on the other side of midnight tonight as we're filling, waiting for Mr. Thompson to appear. Um, I want to direct your attention to my second item. Again, the way you get to this stuff is you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on tonight's banner, which takes you to the guest page. And then you simply click on the fast links under that banner, which is a duplicate of the one on the home page. That will take you to my items directly. Item number two, in the same days that the Artemis One spacecraft stack, which is the most powerful rocket on the planet now, uh, not historically speaking, that was the Saturn V, uh, the Block One SLS, meaning the first iteration by NASA of the space launch system, which is not a duplicate of the Saturn V, but kind of like the next best thing to come. I mean, the Block 1 really is not as powerful, even though the thrust is, is uh, greater momentarily. Uh, you don't judge rockets by their thrust. You judge them by their ability to carry payloads into orbit. The uh, SLS, Orion combination, can put about 95,000 kilograms into low Earth orbit. The Saturn V could put 118,000 kilograms into low Earth orbit. And for those of you who say, why is he speaking French? You know, the, the uh, uh, centigrade um, metric system. Well, it's because that's the way it's listed on the NASA graphs. If you want to uh, convert that to pounds, 
you multiply by 2.2 because there's 2.2 kilograms per pound. So you can see that the SLS, even though NASA is touting it again and again and again as the most powerful, it's not. The Saturn V still holds the champion role as it should. I mean, when I look back, the fact that the Saturn V was even created with 1940s and 50s technology shows the genius of Werner von Braun. Now, um, Barbara Honiger, who was a well-known name on this show, who used to be a policy advisor, one of the few women in the Reagan White House, in the executive branch of the U.S. government, working under a guy named Martin Anderson, who was the chief domestic policy advisor to then-President Reagan. Barbara Honiger turned me on this week to a very important book, which comes in three volumes. And she actually went out, God bless her soul, and she bought me all three volumes because she knows that we are very strapped for cash here at the other side of midnight. And I'm going to go into that in a little bit because that's part of the coming campaign that we need to prepare to conduct in the face of, shall we say, NASA um, uh, obstinance to reveal finally after half a century, the truth of what's on the moon. And to do that, you need money. Really, there are very many things that cannot be bought in life with with funds, with money, but um, a political campaign, which is what, of course, this will turn into very quickly, you need cash, you need money. And we need money just to keep the show going. And I've noticed of late that our memberships have fallen off a bit, and I presume it's because of everyone being strapped And so I will have some things to say later in the morning, given that it looks like I'm going to have a lot of time here by myself and with folks who call in because we can't find Mr. Thompson yet. And um, be that as it may. Anyway, um, where was I? When I kind of do these things that you can get lost in the weeds. So if you are new to the show, click on tonight's banner on the other side of midnight. That will take you to the guest page. Click on the fast links on my name under the guest page. That takes you down to my items. Item number two, in the same time frame, and obviously this is not an accident, in the same time frame that NASA rolled the Artemis One stack back to the pad midweek, and it's now sitting there waiting in the pre-dawn Florida skies for the launch a week from this coming Monday night, They also unveiled a couple days ago the potential landing sites for the Artemis III mission, which is the first mission that will have a human crew literally land again on the moon, which will be the first Americans, the first anybody, the first humans from Earth who will have set boot on the moon since Gene uh, Cernan left the moon surface back in December of 1972. And so if you look at item number two, NASA selects potential lunar landing sites for Artemis three. you click on that and you will see um, this LRO, which stands for Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is an unmanned spacecraft, which NASA has been operating successfully in lunar orbit since 2009. Okay. Um, The LRO imagery covers the entire moon now at various resolutions. What the NASA people did was to put out a map 
of the South Pole because the intended target for the next lunar landing by human beings from planet Earth is going to be somewhere near the lunar South Pole. And of course, you can see if you look at that photo mosaic, which has a grid, which has the uh, South Pole clearly marked, it has uh, 13 little bluish squares. Those are the 13 potential landing sites where the Artemis III mission, which remember is two missions after Artemis I, which leaves a week supposedly from two days from tonight, Monday morning. Um, one of those three, one of those 13 uh, little bluish boxes will be where they finally select where Artemis III will touch down, carrying the first woman to the moon, which of course is kind of appropriate as you're going to see in great detail uh, next Sunday night because Artemis is a woman and Artemis is the sister of Apollo, which was the Greek god chosen as the imprimatur and the symbolism of the Apollo project going to and from the moon with the first humans from Earth in a very, 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 very long time. That, of course, is my editorial. If you talk to NASA, they'll say it's the first humans ever. No, it is not. And next Sunday night, I'm hoping to assemble enough data that will prove that. I mean, if, if anything uh, good has come out of the Trump, the Trump administration, his election, the four years he served as president, and what's currently going on now, it is that the kind of naive uh, perspective I had going into uh, my life, my career, my professional interests, uh, this show, which is that give people enough evidence and they will change their minds, uh, has proven not to be the case. There are certain aspects of human existence, human endeavor, that no amount of evidence, and I mean none, is able to change people's minds. Once their mind on the subject has been made up, um, data is, is irrelevant. Data be damned. Um, and this, to me, was a very soulful and very sobering uh, awakening. I used to think, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I kind of went into the physical sciences as opposed to, you know, something a little more, uh, you know, subjective like politics or, or um, you know, psychology or, or uh, even, you know, selling storm windows. Because, of course, if you're going to sell storm windows, you've got to know your customers, right? I chose the physical sciences because of something called the laws of physics, and an insight that I had kind of early this week when I've been watching extraordinary deference that the Department of Justice over the last year and a half has shown uh, Donald Trump as opposed to uh, what happened with my own family uh, many, many decades ago. Um, and I, I may – now I think I'm going to kind of defer on that conversation because that would take us down a whole other canyon and uh, we have callers now stacking up. If you want to join this conversation, if you have something you want to talk to me about or questions or an opinion, and, you know, we have plenty of room for diversity of opinion. We have a lot of people here who have very diverse opinions who show up on the show regularly. 
and I think you know some of them by name. Uh, Ron is one. Robert Morningstar is another. Kinsia is a third. I mean, they all have airtime because I am a real obsessive when it comes to the First Amendment. What I never imagined is that under the First Amendment came this rubric, you know, put forth by Jefferson primarily, that there should be a separation in the creation of this experiment between religion, faith, and fact, which is physics, which is, you know, political truths, which is, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Well, if I've learned anything in the last uh, four or five years is that there are certain truths that to a lot of people are not self-evident, or if they are, they're of exactly the opposite sign to the truth that I am holding as self-evident. And that really was an important part of my developing education because I now realize that compared to the political firestorms occurring here and all around the world as we reach this crescendo in the physics, which again is one of my truths, two people looking at the same data can come to exactly opposite political conclusions. And we're looking at evidence of this all around us. And it's, it, to me, at some level, it's incredibly interesting academically. And at another level, it scares me to death because it's how obsessives are formed. People for whom no amount of information coming externally will ever sway them from their position. And I used to be of the opinion that if you provide people with enough facts, uh, ultimately they will change their mind if the facts are independently uh, arrived at and uh, presented from credible sources, meaning sources that have done their homework, that actually are not just spouting an opinion, but actually have substance and documentable information behind them. That naive perspective has gone out the window. Because I'm seeing people who I respect, who I care for, who I have known for decades, reach exactly the opposite conclusions uh, based on, you know, the same sea of information uh, that I'm delving into, except they're not. Uh, I try to sample a wide variety of sources. I mean, I used to really get off on, uh, uh, you know, uh, Bill's... Uh, memos over on Fox. I thought he had some really interesting points and he presented it interestingly and I've kind of dabbled from time to time if I should do that, you know, kind of editorializing and I decided probably that would not be a good idea. But I look at a wide range of input, but I also look at the sourcing behind the input and to me um the show that I'm trying to put together which turns out to be a lot more difficult than I had thought because one of the guests particularly that I want has had a series of, of issues uh, medically, which has kept him from participating in the show, which is, uh, you know, at three o'clock in the morning, um, I'm sorry, midnight, ending at three o'clock in the morning his time because he's on the East Coast. But I really want to do the first of a series of shows of how do we know what we know? Because uh, as uh, my grandmother used to say, and this is a very long kind of homily, uh, those who know not and know not that they know not, they're okay. And those that know 
and know that they know, they're okay. But those that know not and that they know, God help us. And it all ultimately comes down to process. How do you make decisions in the incredible, you know, free-for-all known as the Internet, the web, all the different webs up to and including the dark web? How do you separate signal, in other words, reality, from fake stuff? Even people who believe religiously their fake stuff, their stuff is fake. How do you separate, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Authentic fake stuff pervaded by people who don't know any better uh, from real fake stuff, people who are out to basically con you, uh, get money out of you, convince you of a political you know, line of thinking, which is total crap, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, how do we know what we know? And it turns out, of course, which is something that I did kind of know at an academic level, but really we've experienced over the last four or five years, it turns out to be so difficult to separate the signal reality from the noise. And there are all kinds of misapprehensions about, you know, the sciences and the so-called hard uh, physics, the, the testable presuppositions about this physical law or that physical law. There's even incredible ambiguity there to where I saw a post the other day. It's, it's making the rounds. Um, one of our trusted sources sent it to me. Uh, it basically has a title, which is uh, everything we think we know is a fraud or something like that. And I obviously was curious, you know, how did this person arrive uh, at the conclusion that everything, underscoring the everything, that they think they know is a fraud. Well, I went and looked at the examples. And to give you one example uh, of someone who obviously knows nothing about science, knows nothing about chemistry, knows nothing about anything but the fact that politics is filled these days with opinion and perception with little tethering, if zero tethering, to some actual truth. What this individual listed in this uh, PDF is a whole series of things that used to be believed and no longer are even being discussed. Like they were incredibly important problems and now they appear just to have gone away, become non-problems. And one in particular that this individual picked out was the idea of acid rain. Um, the concept in the 70s of acid rain, which was of the same era where uh, I lived in New England, so acid rain coming from coal-fired power plants to the west of us, given that weather in the United States and actually around the world in the Northern Hemisphere moves generally from west to east, New England would become the dumping ground for all the crud that the rest of the country put into the atmosphere, including you know, steel manufacture and coal-fired power plants and you know, just people driving cars and all of the atmospheric pollutants that you know, were accumulating from Los Angeles to New England wound up drifting over New England. And when it rained, uh, the rain, because primarily of the sulfur and sulfur dioxide in the smokestacks uh, from the Midwest, the industrial rust belt, particularly power plants, they would condense out in rain and fall as rain that had a very, I always get this wrong, high pH, I think, as opposed to low, which is acidic. I think, I think low is acidic and, 
and, and base is high, so it would be low, uh, high acid content, low pH. So it was literally turning the trees brown. You could see the effect of acid, sulfuric acid, because that's basically what it was, in a very dilute form. And we know a planet right next to us, it's a twin of Earth called Venus, which is slightly smaller, and its atmosphere has sulfur, sulfuric acid rain as measured by both Soviet and American probes. So there's a whole planet where the climate has gone to hell in a handbasket. And of course, the environmentalists back in the 70s were were um, issuing the same warnings for here. Anyway, this particular writer listing a whole series of things that used to be at the top of the public mind and now nobody talks about, picked out among all the lies that he believed forthrightly he had been told uh, was the concept of acid rain that it used to be a big thing on everybody's radar and used to be doing terrible things and now nobody talked about it because in his perception, it wasn't real to begin with. It was another, you know, lib talking point. Or, of course, back in the 70s, these terms didn't exist. A woke talking point. What obviously this writer did not know because he didn't follow the story is that acid rain to the extent that I lived it growing up in New England, no longer exists. Why? Because of the EPA. The Nixon-created Environmental Protection Agency, which literally, after congressional legislation signed by the president, uh, enacted regulations on power plants to where they had to install sulfur dioxide scrubbers technical devices that literally pull the sulfur out of the effluents emanating from the burning of coal, particularly soft coal, the the kind that is so economically easy to get to, which has a lot of sulfur. And it was that sulfur being dumped into the air that created the acid rain problem in the first place. Well, by putting in electrostatic scrubbers, by developing a technology to remove uh, with physics the effluence, you know, emanating from those smokestacks in large measure. The problem of acid rain has not gone away because it was just a fanciful creation of the libs, gone away because the American society, uh, both in terms of public appreciation and enactment of key legislation in the Congress and the assigning of that legislation by the president, in this case, a Republican, Richard Nixon, it literally created a technology to clean the air, leaving those smokestacks, all those incredibly dark power plants and effluvians, you know, belching God knows what into the atmosphere. In other words, popular legislation enacted duly uh, by the elected representatives of the people, the Congress, created a technological fix to the problem of acid rain and the reason we don't have it anymore and we don't talk about it is because it was legislated technologically out of existence by and large by an environmental awareness developing under a Republican administration in the 1970s headed by Richard Milhouse Nixon. And this writer appeared to be completely oblivious that no, he wasn't lied to. People had taken control of their lives they applied the best science of the times. They created a technological solution. They implemented in law that solution on 
individual privately owned power plants via regulation. And the result was the air has gotten a lot better. The same can be said of what used to go on in Los Angeles, where I developed my hydrocarbon sensitivity, which may be part of the reason that I get these bizarre headaches. Uh, I was exposed in the formative years to L.A. smog, and it did not do me any good. Now, of course, smog in Los Angeles is very, very, very rare. And with the enactment of this new legislation, which is putting almost $370 billion into all kinds of technologies that will really blunt the climate problem, uh, the air will get a lot cleaner. There are all kinds of other side effects up there, including the amount of carbon we put into the air is going to go down to where the models say that by 2030, we should be about 40% of the way to a carbon neutral atmosphere. And I'm thinking that those curves are probably a little conservative because the amount of money being put in the development of new technologies and the creation of new industries and the liberation of new genius in creating paying jobs around a problem that then becomes a job creating solution, that curve is going to not be linear. It's going to be an asymptotic curve rising steeply in the out years, meaning as we go from 2022 to 2030. And so I'm thinking that we're going to be even closer to the targets reached under the Paris Agreement of all 195 nations signing the climate accords. Did you note the number, 195 nations? That's not an accident. So we live in a multi-tiered, multi-symbolic, multi-layered society, a civilization where now we have taken a major step, the biggest ever, not as big as it should have been, but it's, it's a bite of the apple. And one of the things that I have learned over the years is that in terms of politics, once you get the uh, foot in the door or the um, nose of the camel under the tent, things progress more rapidly in the direction of the goals you wish to achieve. Well, here we are. Another half hour is gone on the Saturday night version here in August, in late August, of the other side of midnight. There's no Neville Thompson. But once I get through the rest of these items and I don't get too more digressed, people are joining the phone lines and we will open the lines and we will have what is called a full and four-square conversation. And I have no idea what people will want to talk about or bring up but I guarantee you it will probably not be trivial. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thank you. 
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side is midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night here in the land of enchantment. It's been raining for the last several days. In fact, it's been raining off and on for several months, which is incredibly important because the West has been having, if you hadn't noticed, a drought. California is still having a drought. I have my uh, suspicions that that may not be natural. It may be artificial, and that's a whole other conversation as to Why would someone be steering storms away from California? Is it malevolent or is it benevolent? That's a whole other conversation. Today what I'm going to do, rather than go back to the news, because I can come back and flow in and out of some of those news items, which are relevant, I'm going to open the phone lines. And David from New York is on uh, uh, the phone, area 646. So he's been very patient for the last half hour. And then we have Steve from Clearwater, Florida. If you want to join the conversation, uh, 917-889-8802. This is a cut from the Martian soundtrack called Making Water. And tonight in the Land of Enchantment, we finally, outside, all weekend, have been making water. Okay, we open the lines. David, are you there? I'm here, Richard, and I'm not being patient with you. You've been patient with all of us for 20 years, so thank you for (laughs) the amazing work you do because some of us do believe what is actually evidence. I'm calling from Rochester, New York, um, where UFO sightings nearly doubled over the past few years and where um, Adam Frank, a professor of physics and astronomy, just got a grant from NASA to start looking for techno signatures on exoplanets, ah. which Don't is love when incredibly they actually, exciting. When they all talk about artifacts that we've been talking about for decades and decades and they suddenly have a name for it. Oh, it's techno signatures and suddenly it's mainstream. Yeah. Uh, and that, this is how 
until they give it their own vernacular, we don't have a way to buy in unless people sign up to the other side of midnight and watch radio with pictures. Because um, we've known this for decades because of your work. So thank you for the best three hours of radio I've enjoyed for many years from you. So well, I have you. two comments and a suggestion. Okay. With accompanied by volunteerism. Um, because this audience is willing to uh, move to make the truth be known. Number one, first consideration, what would be, uh, what would it take to put together a show to analyze the legal necessity, the legal efforts to find out what's really in the Trump files? Are there guests out there that you could bring in from your vast, infinite Rolodex that would give us some answers about how we would find out, did Trump actually walk out with material that justified SWAT teams, helicopters, and everything else they could imagine <laughs> raiding his home? Huh. Well, because maybe it wasn't nuclear secrets. Maybe it was well, pictures. Let me, let me stop you there, because they didn't raid his home. They literally called up and made an appointment at 10 o'clock in the morning and they arrived without their windbreakers and they had no weapons and they worked with the secret Remember, he's surrounded 24 seven by secret service, which is another branch of the U S government. So it was a very amicable uh, discussion between the secret service guys and the FBI guys. And they had a legal search warrant signed by a judge through all the protocols. And the fact that people are freaking out is just because he's a president and no one's ever you know, search the president's house under, under court order. I, I probably should tell you that when my parents ran a, a bed and breakfast and restaurant in Gaithersburg, Maryland, back in the 1950s, and I checked the dates, uh, it was on 58. Um, eventually, because we worked 24-7, and all the kids, you know, four kids in our family, we all worked just as hard as our parents because it took all of us to basically make a living and when you serve the public in a restaurant, uh, that's a lot of work. I mean, I don't know whether you ever worked in a, in a restaurant, fast uh-huh. food, whatever, but it's a lot of work. You know, It'll make a man out of you. Ah, God, yes. And then, and maybe one of the reasons that I kind of got in early on the dealing with the public thing is because you had to deal with people. You had to deal with the public. You know, in an era where, remember, it used to be said the customer is always right. Well, there are many times... Well, sometimes when customers are not right, they're just wrong and they're dead wrong and they are so egocentric that they don't know they're wrong and they won't listen to you. So you have to work around their being wrong and make them feel that they're right. even if. They're... So I, I kind of learned at a very early age because I was in my, uh, you know, I was 11, 12, somewhere around there. Anyway, so finally to get away from this relentless onslaught, um, we had a little bit of a margin. And my parents hired a housekeeper to basically watch the house and take care of the animals and make sure that nobody broke in because there was valuable stuff when you run a restaurant. And we closed for a weekend and we went up to this delightful mountain cabin. that You had to cross a swinging bridge over a stream. And we had an incredible uh, real vacation as a family for the first time in years in the middle of nowhere doing nothing because, of course, no Internet. We had to take books, no television, 
even radio was iffy up in the mountains, uh, you know, above Frederick, Maryland. Uh, anyway, when we came, came back, the housekeeper was incredible. No cell phones, right? Um, the, the cabin didn't have a phone. There was literally we were cut off from civilization for a delightful weekend. We got back home to Gaithersburg, and the housekeeper runs out. We hadn't even got out of the car, and she says, "Oh my God, I'm so glad you're home. The FBI was here and they raided you." And my parents said, "What?" It turns out while we were gone, the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, had raided our restaurant and home and the bed and breakfast. And the reason in the warrant we were accused, my parents were accused of running drugs because in no other way could the town fathers and the police and the FBI imagine why our place was the hangout for every teenager in town. They thought that they literally were running drugs out the back door, and that's why all these teenagers kept hanging out and sitting around tables in the restaurant and having – I mean, I remember conversations with, with kids that were like three, four years older than I was, and it didn't matter our age. We just talked about interesting stuff. Because remember, this was the beginning of the space program. It was when Sputnik had just gone up. It was explorer time. It was, you know, Kennedy hadn't talked about going to the moon yet, but we all kind of knew that that was where this might be headed. So we had amazing discussions. I, as a you know, 12-year-old kid, and the FBI could only think, and the local police could only think that the only reason why all these teenagers hung out at our place was because my mom and father were dealing drugs. They even took apart the piano. I mean, forget about Trump's safe. They took apart the damn piano and left it in pieces. So I know what it's like to be raided by the FBI. And frankly, it's no big effing deal. If you're under legal magistrate court order and there's probable cause, which there was from the external uh, viewpoint, because no one could figure out what it was my parents were doing that made our place the mecca of Gaithersburg. And ultimately, it was just because my parents treated kids as people, which, of course, their own parents didn't treat them as people. Okay. Wow. I'd still love to hear how we find out what we could deduct from these files from expert legal opinion, well, somehow, legal, some way. All right, all right. These are really good questions, and I'm, I've got time tonight because Neville's not with us. I hope he's okay um, to be able to deal with your questions and discussion and, and anybody else. Let me give you the number out again. If you want to join this, 917-889-8802. So let me tell you why I don't think we're going to know what's in those files for a very long time and maybe never unless there are leaks. Under the current legal system, unlike what Comey did to Hillary, which obviously wound up with, with Donald being elected and Hillary not being elected back in uh, 2016, um, the, the, the prescribed code of the FBI and the DOJ is until there is an indictment, until someone is formally indicted on criminal charges, Basically, nothing surrounding the case 
should be made public because as I forget which Secretary of Labor, I think it was under Clinton, said after he'd been trashed up and down, back and forth by uh, uh, Gingrich and the Republicans, he basically said plaintively one day on some new show, where do I go to get my good name back? Because once, as my grandmother used to say, once you un, un you know, seal the uh, feather uh, pillow on someone else's doorstep, there's no way to put all the damn feathers back in the pillowcase. So the the documentation mm. of what's in the files, and even if there is, in fact, provable classified material or other material under the warrant, will not be known generally until and if there is an indictment, which, of course, is the way you preserve people's good name and the presumption under our legal system of innocence until proven guilty. Now, that archaic concept was obviously created long before the Internet and social media. And remember, it wasn't the the government that revealed that they had searched Mar-a-Lago. It was Trump himself because he thought he would gain a political advantage, which, of course, he's been doing for four years or 40 years, depending upon how you look at it, by making it public, you know, polarizing the situation, uh, appealing to his, his, uh, his base, et cetera, et cetera. So he made raid, which was not a raid. That's when they kicked down your door and bust up your piano. Uh, no pianos were mutilated in the uh, search on Mar-a-Lago, as far as I know, unlike ours. Um, they literally did a gentleman uh, search. It's all on video. How do we know? Because Trump did something even upping Nixon. He's bugged his entire establishment. He's got cameras all over Mar-a-Lago, so there probably is wonderful high-def color uh, television of everything the FBI did during the search, which, again, the former president has said he's going to release. And, of course, we don't see anything happening, even though he's had it for two weeks. Why not? Because what it will probably show is a whole bunch of uh, FBI agents carting out box after box after box of material from various rooms in Mar-a-Lago, which, according to the uh, um, uh, list of materials that they have to provide uh, the person whose home they searched, there's an itemized list of all the categories of materials and something like 11 sets. I like the way they say sets as opposed to boxes of classified material ranging from confidential all the way up to top secret and then the highest level compartmentalized. And remember, for all those people that think that basically the FBI just went in and planted a whole bunch of bad stuff, under the system, if the rules of the system are followed, which, of course, with everybody looking, they will be, that would be illegal. The FBI literally would go to jail. The agents who did that, if they carted in stuff and planted it, they would be found out eventually, and they will go to jail because that's obviously a criminal enterprise. So there are checks and balances all through the system in the most high-profile indictment and trial in U.S. history. You can be guaranteed dollars to Navy beans that Donald Trump will get a fair trial. Why? Because millions of people will literally be looking and combing through every scrap of information. And if it's not on the up and up, there will be leaks because Donald Trump has a lot of supporters in the FBI. Hell, he still has people in, in power in the Biden administration. 
in key positions of administrative authority, like the um, uh, who's the guy at the Department of Homeland Security uh, who's supposed to be the watchdog and turns out that he hasn't been watching much of anything. So this is going to be one of the most interesting exposés of how the system is supposed to work in a, in a situation where everybody will be paying attention. Remember Franklin, it's a republic, madam, if you can keep it. Well, how come we've let it kind of fray at the edges? Because we haven't been paying attention. This will make us all pay attention. It'll be the biggest game, the best e-ticket in town, if, in fact, he is indicted. But we don't know whether he's going to be indicted because was the prime objective of uh, Garland to indict the president on this or was it to get the material back and given what we're said is in those boxes which could include we don't know for sure special access programs which is the code for anti-gravity hyperdimensional energy ancient ET ruins on the moon all the things we're never supposed to know about and that the deep state has spent decades keeping a secret for could in fact through the legal process up to a point come out because the government will have to proffer something in open court to prove that this, after a year and a half of discussion, this warrant, this search was in fact legally warranted. So I think we're going to have to be very patient. This could take a long time because, of course, Trump's lawyers will throw every roadblock they can legally in the way of, of coming to trial. Um, and so it may, we may not instantly find out unless, and this is the wild card, given that we're dealing with Donald Trump, he may decide to make some of this stuff public and he may claim, which I find a really interesting claim, which would have to be adjudicated, that what he did was perfectly legal because Biden is the imposter and Donald Trump is still the president. Remember, that's his position. If he really believes that, and if he took this material with him, it also throws a huge monkey wrench into the January 6th committee because their whole uh, effort is to figure out his mindset, his intent. What did he really think? And they have concluded, based on all the testimony, most of it by Trump people like, uh, you know, the attorney general and uh, the head of his legal uh, office there in the White House – uh, Cipollone and others, they believe that he should have known that he did not win the election. But if in taking the documents, he thought really that he still was president, this becomes an extraordinary positive piece of evidence in his favor that though he may be by all the evidence, the rest of us are looking at delusional. If Donald Trump still thinks to this day he is president, then this could have been a stroke of genius. What's in the boxes could be almost irrelevant to what he really intended all along, which was to use them as the, oh, you're going to hate me for this, trump card in the ultimate prosecution of the former president. Wow. Can I give you one other suggestion? Can I sneak that in, Richard? Yeah, of course. We have plenty of time. Um uh, you're uniquely qualified to do this, of everybody in the media on radio. Yeah, um, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the famine early warning system at NASA. 
the Earth Data Famine Early Warning System, um, which is now being run um, by Molly Brown at NASA. This is a satellite detection system that NASA uses to interpret the development of famines. I work in famine research um, with a large number of NGOs. Um, there's a problem, and I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, there's a problem with FUSE, the Famine Early Warning System at NASA. And no one who doesn't know NASA qualified to start digging into it. But when you start digging into what's going on with the data at FUSE, the Famine Early Warning System, you start realizing there's something wrong with it, and it's consistent with what you have been telling your listening audience for decades about how NASA plays with data, how they change data. The only difference here is, whereas you're talking about the biggest story in the history of humanity, they're doing it right now with famine. And that was just shown at the 22nd World AIDS Conference in Montreal. I was in attendance of it as a delegate. You, no one is qualified in Congress. No one is qualified in the NGOs to take a look at what they're doing at the famine early warning system. But every NGO, every government organization, the World Food Program, UNAIDS, the uh, USAID, um, everybody depends on FUSE, and what they say is what is, even if it's not. And no one has ever spoken about how the data from FUSE is being sent out there, how it's being looked at, who's interpreting it, and having listened to your show for decades, I started looking into it, and there's a problem. There are a lot of problems. There's a lot of inconsistencies. There's a lot of scrubbing that's going on. And I would love to see the other side of midnight take a look at this, because it's in the agency that you uniquely have the greatest degree of qualifications to analyze and interpret. Well, you, you know that I was at Goddard when the Landsat program, which is the basis of this famine alert uh, was founded, right? I did not know that. Yeah, Landsat was the first, I mean, Goddard was the center, the NASA center of the eight or nine that exists, that was devoted basically to earth resources, the earth environment, um, climate, all that before it got farmed out to, to NOAA. Um, so Landsat was the first synoptic satellite created by NASA at Goddard to basically go into orbit, look down at the Earth with multispectral cameras, and basically measure things like crop, uh, water uh, table levels, ar aridity, uh, dust storms, drought, all those things in a very primitive way. Because this was back in the 1970s. We now have much more sophisticated sensors in a whole range of satellites dozens they're looking at all the parameters uh of the earth and doing a much better job and of course now because of, of telemetry and huge bandwidths and computers and the ability to sift through you know gigabytes of data almost in real time this is all available on computers so as i understand it the spews program is looking basically 
at the environment of the planet and trying to predict crop yields in various parts of the world, which will ultimately, if they have bad conditions or you know uh, local droughts or local uh, environmental problems, you wind up with less grain, you wind up with less food, and ultimately people starve. So that's the basis of this program. And you're saying that based on this conference, someone was able to document that someone is deliberately tinkering with that data and hiding the fact that there are major systemic problems in the global food supply? There are major systemic problems in how the data is being interpreted. We are picking the data that appeals to different international intergovernmental agencies, whether it's the World Food Program, whether it's uh, USAID, UNICEF, that is directing resources in ways that where they're not needed and ignoring areas that are. Fuse has been politicized, like everything else a lot of people would say, but it's the data it's not pure data. It's not raw data. It's the raw data is not being made available, and it's indicative of this coming from on high somewhere to create an interpretation that the food aid that we're giving right now is going in the right places when it's not. Okay. Well, this is obviously a huge can of worms, and we need to start somewhere, so you need to send me um, – some documents or links or whatever. I don't like videos because they're too linear. I like papers. I like things I can ripple through and look through and look at summaries and then go back and look at graphs and all that. If you can start there, and obviously I need to think about who at NASA, because my folks at NASA are long since departed, so I would have to start from scratch in terms of where to begin to dig in. But I, but I need to start with the base problem and then we'll just take it from there. I do know that apropos of this conference this year and their concerns, that when the war between Russia and Ukraine you know, erupted, when Putin decided to invade, as I said to Dr. Spence on the show oh, months ago, six months ago, when we started looking at Ukraine as a geopolitical problem, I said, but isn't this the breadbasket um, of, mm-hmm. of basically Europe? And he kind of demurred. And I did a little digging, and I realized that my uh, you know, first impression, that like the American Midwest, the Ukraine is the breadbasket of a large part, not just of Europe, but of the world. And because of Putin's war uh, and the fact that uh, grain shipments could not leave Odessa for months and months and months until the Turkey uh, intervention created some kind of an agreement where I believe now grain ships are able to leave and there is the beginning of shipment, that that was the primary short-term cause for imminent starvation of millions of people in Africa, among other places. But this longer systemic problem of misinterpretation of global environmental data impacting on the creation of crops and food, that is something that I have not been aware of. If there is documentation, by all means, start a pipeline, send it to me, um, you can start it through the uh, uh, website, and then when we're in personal discussion, I'll give you a direct uh, link so you can send it to me directly. But, yeah, this is something that obviously we should look into. And guess what? We're at the bottom of the hour. So I'm going to put you on hold, 
uh, if I do this properly, which I think I can. Uh, okay. Um, I think, oh, did I get, oh, I think I the wrong thing. I hit the wrong button. Uh, David, if you want to call back, please do, uh, if you weren't finished. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to go to a break at the bottom of the hour. As you know, we're playing uh, in honor of Neville Thompson, mysterious Neville Thompson, who is not here tonight. We're playing from the album The Martian. You are on the other side of midnight. It's open lines tonight, and we've got callers standing in the wings, including Mr. Morningstar. So we here shall return. Don't touch that dial. I have no idea what we're going to talk about. Maybe it begins with T. Maybe. side of midnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, August 20th, 2022. This is like an improv evening. We have open lines because my guest, Neville Thompson, who was supposed to be on the show tonight, he probably didn't understand because when I talked to him, I was in the midst of this migraine and I was feeling horrible and I was able to reach him on Skype and I just said, Neville, we're going to have to postpone this and he may have thought it was a week from Sunday last, which is when he was supposed to be on initially. So he may just be peacefully snoozing, sleeping in, thinking it's tomorrow night. Which, incidentally, tomorrow night um, I'm going to be uh, talking again with an old friend, Dr. Chandra Wickrama Singh, who is, as you know, a very dear friend of my late friend Arthur Clark and Fred Hoyle, the brilliant astrophysicist from the 1950s who figured out uh, the detailed nuclear reactions by which the sun 
and other stars actually shine after uh, Hans Bethe on a train out of New York one afternoon uh, many years earlier had kind of sketched out uh, the nuclear reaction, the nucleosynthesis reactions whereby the sun could in fact shine and other stars. And so Chandra was uh, colleagues with both of them um, and with uh, Sir Fred Hoyle who was eventually knighted by the queen. He always deserved to be knighted by the queen because he was the one of the major proponents of the so-called steady state model of cosmology. And Chandra, tomorrow night, is going to be talking. He's the perfect guy to talk about this. Apparently, in the last few weeks, where the Webb telescope has been feverishly conducting extraordinary observations, they have made observations now at the most distant end of the galaxy range based on luminosities and color and the infrared illumination which is one of the grosser ways of measuring the so-called redshift anyway there appears to be a burgeoning revolution in the whole field of cosmology based on the first few weeks of web data because according to this new web information remember a telescope with a 21 foot mirror that's fully a hundred times more powerful than Hubble in orbit around the L2 point, even as I speak tonight. The newest data, the, the most recent data, the beginnings of this data from Webb apparently is striking at the heart of the current cosmological model, which has everything flying apart after a big bang, uh, reaching the speed of light at the edge of the observable sphere 13.7 billion light years in radius from where we sit tonight in this 3d universe apparently there's web data which says that this model is absolutely wrong and we could be on the verge of one of many stunning revolutions in cosmology and astrophysics and our place in the galaxy and the universe and even down to my favorite of course the determination are we alone is there evidence out there that in fact the galaxy as Carl Sagan used to say is teeming with life and all of that is on tap tomorrow night where Chandra and I will have three hours to discuss these extraordinary multiple parallel revolutions which all are taking place now even as the political revolutions are swirling all around us is this just by accident is this just by chance or is this being modulated by the very physics which they've been hiding from us for decade after decade century after century and millennia after millennia Stay tuned tomorrow night to find out. Okay, we're going to open the phone lines now. I noticed David does not call back. Maybe he uh, has kind of discussed everything he needed to. If he sends me that data, I will begin looking into this. 
because I can't imagine, given that billions of people's lives are at stake, that someone would deliberately falsify this kind of data on which lives are totally dependent, unlike E.T. ruins and ancient artifacts and our real history where you can kind of hide it for a very long time and it really doesn't affect anybody in the short term. In the long term, of course, it is, but uh, most people these days do not live in the long term. They live in the short term. So if someone is suborning data on environmental conditions of the planet based on NASA satellites and the access that NGOs and the government agencies all over the world uh, are looking to uh, have truth in terms of what's coming in terms of global famine, we indeed need to be aware and track down who's responsible if we can. So, David, I hope if you're listening, you'll begin that pipeline uh, of data to me right away. Okay, this is Stephen from Clearwater, Florida. Stephen, you are on the air. Yeah, you know, you were talking about why do none of the NASA people talk about the things that they must know and everything. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I got to think about, you know, you said the astronauts were debriefed, and that might have been the extreme thing. But, the memory, but the mem- their memories weren't destroyed. They were simply transferred to the subconscious. Okay? Well, wait, 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 One, what, what's the process by which you can say that? Well, because they, 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 I don't think their memories were destroyed because they still had an internal feeling that they were not, you know, they said something bothered them. They knew that they'd forgotten. Or they oh, yeah, knew that Start, some... starting, starting with Ed Mitchell and then right. that famous, famous case of uh, Buzz Aldrin right. where, where he slugged uh, uh, Siebel for questioning that he went to the moon, which to me always said that he questioned himself. Was he fed a bunch of lies and did he really experience what he thought he did and was he programmed? Remember, I was invited to a conference ostensibly to talk about Mars in uh, Wyoming decades ago, which is a fertile ground for current and former CIA folks. I mean, they literally own all the ranches and they determine the politics and all that. And when I revealed the stuff on the moon way back when, I was literally taken into a side room and read the riot act and threatened by this one uh, ex-CIA agent. And it was, it was really one of those experiences where you don't want to ever live through it again. Person, mm-hmm. last time it's ever happened. I mean, the second time they tried to, they tried to kill me, which was a lot easier because there was nobody in my face, basically yelling at me and turning red faced and absolutely furious that I had not told anybody what I was going to talk about really that it came under under a different rubric, because obviously I was not supposed to talk about what was on the moon. All the while, the wife of this agent who had masterminded this conference set it up, and Kinsia was there and a number of other people that had been on the air. I don't think she was aware at the time of any of this going down, because the last thing I wanted to do was to you know, not leave town. Um, the The wife of this guy who was basically furious at me for discussing and showing data on the moon, turned out to be a medical doctor who was one of the key members of the NASA debriefing team that ran the medical tests on them when they were in the quarantine. And she was obviously part of the hypnotic uh, team, which basically convinced them they hadn't seen anything interesting and they were just following their 
EVA script of, you know, taking rocks here and taking samples there, et cetera, et cetera, and they didn't see anything. So she would not even come to the conference. She just orbited around, literally moving from place to place in this little town in Wyoming where we had the conference, but never, ever showing up. In fact, I was staying at their house, and she never came home during the whole three or four days I was there. He was there, but she was never there because obviously she did not want to be exposed to my questions, given that they found out what I really was interested in Mm -hmm. to talk about at the conference. So I knew at that point that my model that these astronauts had been post-hypnotically dissuaded from even remembering consciously anything they really saw or experienced and fed a script was absolutely rooted in reality. And then I saw this system break down in various places, like when Aldrin was asked by that NBC correspondent, I think at the five-year mark of the Apollo 11 landing, uh, what it felt like, and Aldrin literally got up, rushed off stage, went out in the alley and threw up, which sounded to me an awful lot like post-hypnotic aversion therapy, to where your mind can't even go in a certain direction, or your body will shut down or do weird things to make you not think about the thing you're not supposed to think about. So I really know that the astronauts had their minds manipulated, and it wasn't foolproof because they had to kind of like boost, have booster shots every once in a while, uh, or what, what the equivalent would be. Um, but see, that doesn't apply to the thousands of people who are working with this unmanned robotic data from the moon and Mars and the rovers who see this every day. And I guarantee you the deep state is not mind control, thousands of employees. So how are they constrained? Even the most radical revolutionaries who say in their biographies, this meaning ET life is the Holy grail that made them join NASA in the first place. How can they look at these images and see what we're seeing and not go public? And don't tell me that they're afraid of legalisms because they will make a fortune and they'll be able to hire any number of attorneys and half the country or more will be with them. And so if any of them are bright, and they all are, and they thought this through, which I presume they have done, they would come to the conclusion that their lives would be much better off becoming heroes than be remaining as slaves of a system which is enslaving mankind. So I've been... I've been brought to an almost irrevocable conclusion, which is there's some other force, a higher level force, which is acting on them individually at the level of their minds so they either don't see what's there right, or when they see it, it doesn't connect with I need to tell someone because they're basically in a carefully crafted delusion which implies a technology so far above sodium pentothal and any other kind of suppressive drugs that I deal I feel that we're dealing again with an ET problem and or maybe the breakaways well remember you said you had that dream that that someone said that what you were doing was something about President Reagan or something like that oh yeah way back when yes yes yeah well, one thing that's always sort of oh, it, puzzled me. It, it was so terrifying and so real, and it was so designed to make me go into storm windows 
and stop what I was doing with artifacts. And yet simultaneously, as I was terrified, I've never been so scared in a dream, ever, ever, ever. I woke up in a strange house screaming, literally screaming, and people rushing into my room. You know, my, my, my guess, I was staying at a, at, you know, kind of in the ranch house of the guy who was supposedly in charge of that conference, who also would never meet with me. And that's a whole other discussion. I also, well, during, during the throes of this dream, had the simultaneous awareness, this is not real. I am being manipulated. Someone is feeding me a line of bullshit. Mm-hmm. To repeat a very famous attorney general. <laughs> well, I also think that the night you had the heart attack, and you yes. know, you think that that was a hyperdimensional attack, which I do too. No, I think I it was ha- the guys. I think it was the guys in the room next door with some kind of technology beaming through the wall. Well, well, here's something that's very interesting. I was running all over town to different churches to the nun convent up the road. I did everything. I was getting people praying for you that night. I was knocking on doors at 2 in the morning. I just, you know, please pray for this man. Please pray for this man. And one of the nuns, one of the monks had told me, he says, and, and I didn't think about this for 20 years. He said, we, we, I talked to him three days later. He said, we prayed for him all night, but we got a lot of resistance. Oh, and and it was I I didn't even think you know I thought you know maybe that's some theological term or something like that, but and then he he closed the door and I I didn't pay attention to it and twenty years later I thought maybe that means that there was something on the other side that was pushing, and he, but he said it in such a flat non emotional way that it didn't really spark my interest. And another no, thing, wait, too, is... Did, uh, was he implying that I just wanted to die, or was no, there something around me no, screaming he was, me? He, he felt that from, there was another force counteracting their prayers. Ah, ah, that's, that's the way I would interpret it, yeah. And, and, and here's another thing that's puzzling to me. Have you ever noticed that the top NASA people, you know, like, Don, remember back when David Oates was doing the reverse speech? Oh yeah. One thing one thing I noticed was very strange that the top NASA people like Donna Shirley, Ray Villard, um uh Don Savage I think was his name. Oh my, you know these, the names. You know the people. All yeah. these people had one thing in common with their reversals. They were extremely clear. Now, what what was very strange to me is that would indicate some kind of artificial elevation of their subconscious compared to most other people like celebrities and politicians and stuff that were versed. Theirs are kind of fuzzy. They're more metaphorical. Uh, you have to interpret them more. Why would NASA people as a group have much more pristine, clear reversals? Oh, which that's is a, which really is, interesting. Yes. Wow. I mean, now, were, do you, do you, do you, have you saved on tape any of those reversals? I haven't. I haven't because you know I don't oh. know. I'm sure they're somewhere. But oh. it's puzz- and remember when 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 uh, Michael Malin when when Linda Moulton Howell interviewed him, the same damn thing. The hmm. the reversals were crisp. They were clean. They were not metaphorical. They were straight line, which means that perhaps they went under the same type of mind manipulation in those days as the astronauts did, 
And so their consciousness was suppressed, but their subconscious, which reverse speech is, was preferentially magnified. All the memories mm-hmm. were dumped from the conscious into the unconscious. I don't know if that's true or not. Or if, but well, it's, it's a just very viable right. theory, and theoretically we should be able to test it. So if you did not keep those recordings, do you know where they hang out? Does David Oates have them? Are they on his uh, website? I, I think they're on, 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 They're somewhere on the Internet, and I don't know where they are. I think they're in, in FM Player, one of those okay. old... Your mission, should you choose to accept it... <laughs> Go okay. track them down and send me links because this could be very interesting to the direction that – see, this has nothing to do with imaging and looking at objects and light and shadows right. and pictures and all that. This is the heart of the, of the suppression and lies for over half a century. We need to get to the bottom of this because I keep saying to Ron, how do all these incredibly brilliant, well-meaning people look at these images and not see what we're seeing? Right, exactly. It doesn't make sense. Unless you're dealing with a hyperdimensional answer. Right. Which is a tech member, Arthur Clark. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable magic. If we're dealing with E's, ETs, real ETs, they obviously know a lot more about the human condition than we do. If we're dealing with the breakaways and they had access to the ancient libraries over 70, 80 years, they now have access to a technology that can do this. And I'm kind of wondering if, remember the whole scenario around the so-called Havana syndrome that erupted yes. a few years ago? And mm-hmm. it's now chased people all over the world, and they're mostly in government. They're not just us at Canada, and it's high-level people. What if that is a current deep state effort to mimic this technology at a very crude current 21st century human level that has been in fact perfected by the breakaways and real ETs a long time ago and our guys just want to you know power begets more power they just want to be able to control this themselves right and they're they're bad at it and they're causing brain damage and physical lesions and they're leaving fingerprints all over and nobody wants to talk about it no and not and it would not be detectable by by any kind of you know electromagnetic detectors or anything it, 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 they could do this being they're exactly. dealing with a torsion it's, field it's, it, it, it's, a, it's it's in a field and on a set of frequencies that our current em based technology is kind of yeah. completely mute about it doesn't even know it exists exactly I mean, it's 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 really scary, and it might be done on a global, a global level too. I mean, you you could literally scale this up to literally change people's minds all over the place. I mean, well, when I, exactly when I had those experiences, the thing that was so interesting to me was a, it scared me shitless. I can say that because we're on on cable, but it also I knew simultaneously it was a lie. It was a big lie. It was a lie designed to get me to do anything but pursue artifacts beyond the earth that were left by somebody. And we literally, uh, the, the folks that I was staying with uh, who came from the Bay Area, we drove back to, to Berkeley where I lived at the time, and we didn't fly. We drove and we spent the entire, I forget, day or so driving talking about this dream and I laid out everything I could remember, 
and we all exchanged ideas. And, of course, our ideas were not that sophisticated then, but it was very obvious that something weird had happened. And it happened as I was in a place and in a headspace that was really positive. You know, I was supposed to be mm-hmm. in this guru's guest room, the guy who ran the ranch, who, you know, had connections to Santa Barbara, to, you know, this Indian guru. Uh, I forget his name at the moment. Um, and I did, delivered the first public presentation of the Mars data. And it was an incredibly beautiful setting. It was outside. It was under a starry sky with moon and lightning flickering around the mountains. And it, it, it was and everyone spent like till three o'clock in the morning talking about what I'd shown them vis-a-vis Sidonia. And that was what we basically had to deal with back then. So it was an incredible up positive evening. And to have this happen afterwards was so stunningly, such a downer, so contraindicated, so nothing that I was in any way, shape, or form fearing or being concerned about, whatever. It was obviously something intrusive, and it was designed by brute terror to get me to do anything but pursue what I've been pursuing now for decades. And it did not work. So... Out of all these people at JPL looking at all this stuff, how come it seems to be 100% effective? Nothing in physics is 100%. Nothing. No. And the fact that you knew that it was bullshit, as you say. Yeah. Here's, let me ask you a question. This may seem totally unrelated. Have you ever tried remote viewing but can't do it? No. Have you ever I tried, tried- I tried with um, um, uh, Chris Harder. No, that was his wife's name. Uh-huh. Um, what was his name? He was a professor of engineering at Berkeley. He was deeply into the whole UFO thing. He was a hypnotic specialist. I literally went up to his place in the Berkeley Hills one night, lay down, and we tried to hypnotically put me under to ask some questions. And he mm-hmm. could not. He was an expert expert. He could not hypnotize me could not put me under, no matter what he did. And I was, again, in a very safe place. I trusted these people. Hell, I was going out with his uh, former wife, and that's how we, we met. And he literally could not hypnotize me. That couldn't be – well, what I'm saying here is the fact that you have trouble being hypnotized was the same reason they had trouble to convince you this was real. That's very possible. Now, I've always said from the beginning, and you'd be amazed, if I had a dime for every person who suggested this, I would basically be able to uh, uh, you know, retire. Um, over the years, when I started looking at artifacts, people kept saying, well, why don't you do UFOs? Why don't you, you know, uh, regress the experience? I said, and the biggest thing they said is, why don't you have yourself regressed to see if you've ever had any ET contact or UFO experiences. And my answer was always the same. This is not about me. It's about data that I can prove. Because the one mm-hmm. thing you can't prove in the scientific community is your own experience. I mean, I've had some pretty astonishing experiences uh, with Robin, and she's been dead three and a half years, but she's not dead. She's out there. I mean, I talk to her more frequently through these weird channels than I talk to some people who are still in 3D bodies. And yet I can't prove a word of it. The only way I can prove it is if I get data which is predictive and I put that out there and then what I am given 
comes to pass, but it's all at the level of experience. So I felt from the get-go, it didn't matter if I had, you know, coffee with ETs every third Thursday, who would give a damn? It's just my experience. The ruins are everybody's and they're there physically and we can prove they exist. And that changes everything about who we think we are. So I focused specifically on not my own experience, but the stuff that's provable. And I'm kind of wondering now whether that's part of a built-in defense mechanism to prevent the bad guys from trying to stop what we're doing. Yeah, that's possible. And and do you find that when you have a sense that you're communicating with Robin, is it at any particular time of day? Or oh, no, 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 no. I, I, I definitely gave him this. No, I'm, it, it's not communication in any form that you've ever read about. Right. I've run, I run this by Georgia for hours. We've had conversations to the point of me boring her, I think. She's never encountered anything like this. Someone, and it's not anybody physical, is leaving things around the house. Physical things hmm. in the same place that she left her picture six days after she died. It, I call it kind of like the messaging point in the hall. And whoever's doing this, and I think it's the mice, are literally under her control. They're dragging things in 3D from someplace in this house, which has tons and tons and tons of our stuff, where I literally cannot miss it in that hallway. And the other night, they upped the ante in that they brought something of hers and literally put it in the place where I sit on the couch in the living room. So I could not miss it. And it ultimately had an incredibly interesting message, but it's physical objects. And my Hmm. question was, is she somehow hyperdimensionally manifesting them from one dimension to another? Because that's what the zero point is. And, you know, virtual particles popping in and out of 3D, that's what they're really measuring is the torsion field creation of 3D matter. Or is she simply directing these little guys to move something from one location to where I will notice, and that has a signature. It has a it has a symbolic, um, uh, you know, name or address or meaning. And the best she can do, because of the bandwidth limitation between wherever she is and where we are, is she can only deliver things that have a pre-coded message attached to them. And it's up to me to figure the damn thing out. She still has me figuring things out, and it's three and a half years since she was here having me figure things out. That's Very amazing. Frustrating. That's amazing. That's what Georgia says. She's never heard of anything like this. And the one thing I've been able to do is they are doing artwork. They are literally doing artwork on napkins and paper towels, and I've saved all of this. And when I get my camera back, hint, hint, I can photograph everything they have left over the last three and a half years, and it's a stack at least a foot high. And they're now kind of turning to Martian artwork where they will do a, a, a scene, and you look at it one way, and then you rotate it 90 degrees, and they've used part of one image to create another image that's visible 90 degrees to the first image. And believe me, if I was doing this, I would have no time to do anything else because these are very complex and symbolically laden artworks. In fact, I should probably publish a book of their art, and I'm going to call it, if I do do this, 
messy messengers? Well, the only thing I ever experienced on that was there was a rosary that I had lost. Yeah, and, and you know what we've just done? It just it we, just we, showed we, up in the middle of the floor one day. I I, I mean. Yeah, we have we have blown past the top of the hour break. So oh, I'm do, sorry. I'm sorry. Oh no, it's it's my fault. I should be paying attention. What okay. we're going to do is we're going to recycle the clock. Chris is going to okay. take out a a certain number of seconds before the break, okay. and on the archive it will be seamless. Okay. <laughs> nice talking to you, Richard. Well, okay. You want to hang on or you want to go away? Uh, I'll hang on. I got one more question for you, and then. Okay, and I will hit the right button this time. Okay. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and I am trying to work simultaneously the pots here. See what happens when you get caught up in telling stories? It's not a good thing to tell stories um, that have too much of a dimension because you wind up getting lost in the tales. As I was saying, uh, what was I saying? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard Z. Hoagland. And again, this is a cut from The Martian, which kind of seems appropriate tonight, even though Neville is not here. Uh, obviously, we're going to reschedule. It probably was because I was so in pain when we talked that I was not really clear as to when he was going to be rescheduled. My bad. Anyway, we shall return. Site of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight. It is the witching hour in the land of enchantment. It is after midnight. And yes, Chris will have to cut out about a minute 30 or maybe even two minutes of that because I got carried away. It's been a very interesting night. I'm almost kind of, it's kind of like there was supposed to be open lines tonight because it's, it's a time where we should be discussing some of the things that we do not have time when we're doing live shows to get into. So, uh, back to our uh, uh, guy on the line, Stephen. 
Stephen, you are on the air again. Let's see. Oh, I oh I need to click this. Sorry, sorry. There we are. Okay. 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 I'll, I'll be back. real quick here. Um, no, no, you know, no. We, we have plenty of time. We have plenty of time. You know, this web telescope, and you know, they're talking about things and how far things are from each other and how much time is involved from this spot. You know, what they're assuming is that all their figures are constant. And, you know, you've talked about constants change. They're not constant. So I think it's it, it, to say that this this we're looking at something that happened so many billion years ago with certainty is it, maybe time itself changes. And so how can we really be certain about distances in terms of space and time when with all these dimensions pulling on each other and tugging on each other, how could these measurements have any confidence? I, exactly. I just don't see it's if you're in the trade, it's called your theory, your idea is model dependent, meaning you can take the same data and fit it into two or three different models or ideas for how to explain the data. Because models are just ideas, right? And theories are just right. ideas. So we're basically talking about ideas. Now, what Chandra is going to do tomorrow night, since he's been following this and he's given that he's a tenured professor uh, there at, oh, I keep reading the university there in England where he is still attached uh, and he has connections and, and we may have some surprises on a couple other fronts tomorrow night. I asked him to actually you know take on a mission, uh, which we'll talk about. He may have access to new data on the whole cosmological thing that I have not had time uh, to basically follow. And part of it may have to do with exactly what you just said. The assumption going back to, well, it started at the Lowell Observatory when Slifer, who was taking the first spectra of these objects that were not even known to be uh, galaxies then. They were thought to be nebula here somewhere in the Milky Way, you know, gas clouds fluorescing. Uh, and then it was Hubble later at Mount Wilson who proved they were, you know, island universes. I always loved that term, the Andromeda galaxy, an island universe next door. I mean, incredibly <laughs> evocative term. Anyway, that these all were separate galaxies. And then when you got beyond the local cluster, they were running away. If you interpreted the, the red shift as a Doppler shift, you know, the train whistle thing, then... That was a straightforward idea that everything is running away from us at increasing speed until you get to the edge of the visible where they're receding at the speed of light and you can't see anything anymore. That's a very primitive, simple model that came out of the 1920s and 30s, which basically has had you know a lot of filigree added to it, but it's basically the core of the cosmology that the mainstream believes in. We get this incredible new toy, this 10 billion dollar toy and anybody who ever says to you that you can't solve problems by throwing a lot of money at them wrong pale face you can throw 10 billion dollars at web and the damn thing works exquisitely well so if chandra has what i believe he has which another one of my correspondents sent me a link to a recent conference uh uh in the last week or two discussing the same thing we could be on the edge of blowing completely standard cosmological model and opening up a whole new can of worms to what is unimaginable for most mainstream astrophysicists and cosmologists. And then there's the wild card to consider. 
Remember, I presented on this show over the last year or two evidence both from the Perseverance rover in Jezero Crater, the MRO look-down high-resolution imagery of this stunning mirror image of the Giza plateau geometry of the pyramids back-to-back on different scales at the bottom end, the south end of Jezero, and then this recent weirdness with Voyager uh, where it's doing weird things and none of the JPL people can figure out what it's doing. By the way, they put out an excuse saying that whatever it's doing, it's in the filing system and the spacecraft having nothing to do with its physical condition, which frankly I think is another, um, shall we say, uh, NASA half-truth. I think that's the public excuse they've settled on because frankly the Voyager data is showing us what happens when a man-made physical artifact is coming close to the edge of the bubble around the whole solar system in which we may have been placed a long, long time ago as part of this enforced quarantine because there's something different about humanity that the rest of the galaxy and the rest of our relatives do not want to have to interact with, so they basically put us in a phantom zone. And we're looking at the universe through the bubble. So, yes, Stephen, everything we think we know is from observations through the bubble. So, of course, it's got to be wrong at some level. We just don't know how wrong and at what level yet. But maybe the web revolution is going to begin to show us how we can interpret what we're seeing in a correct fashion, which could, in fact, completely upend everything that they think they know. Hmm. It's Double. really, yeah. re- really fascinating. I, 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 like I said, I've always had that sort of that feeling that there's too many assumptions made when by with you know assuming we know exactly what the date is and constants changing and 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 things like that. Um, and one one more thing. I think the problem today is in politics, and I'll end with this, is say they think that society is more polarized than it used to be, and it, and it is. But I think the problem is we just don't listen to each other. For instance, your politics and my politics are farther apart than Web, web can see. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 that's how much different we are. But you know something? If you were president of the United States and I was the head of the Senate, we'd get things done. And that's well, I the difference. Said, I, I have said that's on this show difference. that if she, if she runs for president, I'm going to vote for Liz Cheney. And I don't agree with anything she says or stands for, although I think she's kind of mellowing at the edges because she's, she's so, she has such integrity for looking at data, for information, that mm-hmm. she's actually able to modify previous positions. And there are some interesting modifications. The point is, I think character and integrity and standing for good in the face of evil needs to be rewarded. And a whole bunch of people need to see, you know, Wyoming notwithstanding in that rigged primary, because basically it's all the CIA people all over Wyoming that voted her out. I'm I'm being a little hyperbolic here, but not too much. Um, Someone needs in the population at large to see that integrity and character still mean everything. Uh, there was just a book released by Alan Dershowitz on that very subject. Oh, really? 
Yeah, See, Alan has been taking the Trump side for a long time, and I'm, I'm, can you send me a link? Uh, yeah, I'll sing it. It's, a, it's just been just been released by uh, Alan Dershowitz. It, it's t- t- integrity still counts or something. I'll send you a link. Wow. It'll probably be about two days from now, but I'll send you a link and stuff like that. Yeah, because and it's 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 really good. I mean, he's still a liberal. Everybody thinks he's conservative, but he's still a liberal. But um, he's he and he does ride the, both sides of the fence a little bit. Yeah, but. except he was arguing that Trump shouldn't have been impeached for Ukraine, which of course he should have. Yeah. You do not do that. You do not suborn a foreign leader to try to help your campaign by digging up dirt on your opponent. You just don't. So, yeah. anyway, moving on. Okay. Well, very good. And I, I will let you go so others can talk. And um, thank you very much for everything you do for us. And it's been, like, oh, gosh, it's been 30-some years since I've been listening to you. And uh, enjoy every minute of it. Well, thank you, Stephen, and keep listening. To yeah, me. and I don't know if you remember, but I told you that I've had some difficult times in my life, and I, I think I told you a few weeks ago I was homeless, and I was really down, and I was, you know, I didn't want to really be on this earth anymore, and I was out on the street, and I had a little transistor radio, and I'd turn you on, and you'd be talking about the universe and things and how the the world's made, how God made the world, how wonderful everything is. And it made me realize that things out there are much more beautiful than the life that I was experiencing at the time. So I want to thank you for for that. That was many years ago, but um, I really owe my perspective of the world to you. I really, really do. I don't know what to say. Thank you, Stephen. God bless. Okay. Okay, next up in the lineup... I'm really looking forward to this call. We have Robert Morningstar. Mr. Morningstar, you are on the air. Hello, Richard. Hello, Robert. It's great to hear your voice. It's a great show. Your intuition was half right when you said he wants to talk about T. I would say (laughs) T squared now because of the questions that David and Stephen brought up. Um, Yeah, I was going to call when you had a missing... Missing in action, Mr. Neville, and I was looking forward to that. But I think you're right. I think that uh, this happened for a really good reason. So the two T's, of course, are first, Titan, because I wrote to you about the death of Cassini, that I observed the Cassini satellite going into Saturn earlier in the week and some of the amazing things that I saw that were just blitzed by NASA. No, wait, wait, wait. wait. This, This happened years ago. Robert. Yeah, I know, I know, but they just showed this uh, oh, document. Oh, you mean you mean you mean the documentary JPL produced in I think 2017? Yeah, exactly, exactly. But yeah, I, it, be, before it's kind I of talk running about around that. the clock on NASA Select, so if you have NASA, yeah, yeah, you can check it out. It's, but before really that, I think documentary. David and Stephen asked. Uh, I have a lot of insight on some of the things that uh, they brought up. I'd like to give you a briefing on the uh, Trump Mar-a-Lago search. Uh, I didn't hear it mentioned, so the FBI had to present their case for keeping it secret on Thursday before the judge, Bruce Reinhardt, who had issued uh, the authorized the FISA warrant. And he said the FBI had not made its case, and he gave them until next Thursday, August 25th, to submit what oh, wait, they... Wait, wait, wait. 
it, 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 it's not the FBI. It's the Department of Justice. It's Merrick okay, Garland. Yeah, Department of Justice. The FBI showed up with a warrant in their hands from a FISA court. Okay, that was up. That was okayed by Bruce Reinhardt, who, in my opinion, is a very shady judge. Well, regardless, what, do you, do regardless. You know, hang on, hang on, Robert. Robert. Okay, this what? Can't be a monologue. I have lots of questions. Okay. Bruce Reinhardt has a very interesting past, ultimately yes. connected with the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing. Exactly. That's why I said And the question is, is he a willing participant? Is he being manipulated to do this? And if he's being manipulated by which – in other words, he's not just your average magistrate judge. And my first question, and I've been right. putting it out there with certain contacts, is – why, you know, it's like Casablanca. Why of all the gin joints in all the world did the decision on Garland's warrant fall to this particular magistrate judge to make the most important uh, jurisprudence decision probably in the history of the country? Well, I think he was convenient. I think he was being manipulated. But I think that in, in view of the backlash that has occurred He's retrenching, and he's looking at uh, motivation. So, as I said, he told the FBI, you have not made your case. You have until next Thursday to present. You mean, you mean the, DOJ, the FBI are only messengers. They don't, they don't decide policy. This is decided okay, the by DOJ, right. the, the lawyers for the DOJ. No, it's the Attorney General of the United States who decided to do this. That's mm-hmm. put the buck where the buck belongs. Yeah, the FBI right. is merely an officiating agency that carried out Garland's order. Right, right. As far as the FBI uh, being squeaky clean and trustworthy, I would point out that they have framed scores of people, historic people. They framed Lee Harvey Oswald, James O'Reilly, Sirhan Sirhan. I did a show with Kinthea on the other side of uh, the news a week ago, specifically on the subject of the FBI's behavior over the last 60 years in covering up the real crimes and pinning them, as I say, pinning the tail on the donkey, like Oswald and... But Zorzi, keep in you know? mind, the current director of the FBI is a Trump appointment. Uh, that That is irrelevant. They are, they are in love with the establishment. They have to look out for their own asses, first and foremost, and they have to obey... Fearless leader, but I, I want to talk about. Wait, 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 wait. Um, hang, I want to get hang into this. Hang on, please, please, do not do a monologue. Okay. I have really important questions, and you okay. may have answers. So, okay. if you're saying on the one hand that Reinhardt has second thoughts, it means yes. he has free will. Of course. So why couldn't the head of the FBI have second thoughts and basically say to Garland? Get another boy. I'm resigning. This is a political witch hunt. I'm not going to. In other words, you can't say that both employees are equally bought or unbought. You have to sort out each separate story. Why why is Reinhardt suddenly becoming a good guy? Let's assume the model. And the head of the FBI, whose name escapes me at the moment, is is Christopher Ray. Christopher Ray. Christopher Ray. Yeah, yeah. Why is he? Why does he go along with basically? let's say, a prevarication against Trump in the worst-case yeah. scenario. Well, because I think they're afraid of the um, – they're afraid what the, the supposed documents uh, might reveal. 
I'd like to say this. You said that Trump took these thinking he was president of the United States. These no, I said that one please. possible thing he may claim. I didn't know whether it's true or not. I'm uh, just thinking – Let me just clarify something. These documents were taken out of the White House on the last week of December and the first week of January – and all the documents were put in boxes and shipped by the GSA, the Government Services Administration. Okay, so it wasn't Trump putting them in the boxes and taping them and shipping them FedEx to, to Mar-a-Lago. So those two things have to be clarified. They were removed the last week of December, the first week of January. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. The GSA doesn't do anything until they have yes. an order. They had who the order. ordered what was put in the – who decided what was put in those boxes? Okay. Now, you the have GSA? to go to the reportage of Catherine Herridge, who has produced a document, an executive order, that almost every president has done, that uh, any uh, document that they remove to take home is declassified. And that the president can't be true. the ultimate Robert, declassification Robert, that, that, is, that cannot be true. Do you know why? Because when the president declassifies anything, it's not just declassified for him. It's declassified for the entire world, That's and true. unless the world and unless the world knows about it, someone else seeing the same document and acting differently can get brought up on charges and wind up going to Leavenworth. So there has to be a process to announce to everyone involved this is now declassified. And John Bolton, who was Trump's national security advisor, such an order cannot and never existed. Period. It, it's well, like, go to Catherine Harris. She produced yeah, the document. Who made her God? Well, she's opinion. a researcher and a really well, she accomplished well, she's reporter. She does her research, and she got the document. So look it up. I'm telling you. And every president has had such uh, orders. Then how come John Bolton and Do you know that Obama took off with 33,000 33, uh, documents that are now in uh, the Obama-to-be Library. No, there's 33 million, okay. and they're going to be part of the presidential library, and it's all been done legally because mm -hmm. Trump could have kept anything he wanted and become an offshoot of the National Archive like all presidential libraries are, but and under we'll, law. Yeah. It's well, be done under not law. proven that it's broken the law. Remember, proven. I didn't say it was proven. Well, that's of course, the assertion, of course, of course. and that's let's, what's let's in the it. affidavit okay. that, okay. The, that he claims to want to make public. But you notice that he never filed any legal challenges in court to making the affidavit public. Why not? Oh, he and is he doing that now. Out. He's doing that now. I don't know if you uh, if you're keeping up with all the the information, but uh, Cipollone and, and you know, those are are making statements about it, and it really has to do with uh, violation of the Fourth Amendment, uh, our constitutional right to be uh, free of illegal searches and seizures. And it's very specific what they have to, what they have the authority to do. Which brings and us back so to Reinhardt. Judge, Reinhardt, judge. Reinhardt judge made it legal. Robert, please, please. A federal judge made this legal. There's no illegality here at all. By the letter of the law, they had a right to go in and search under a court order from this federal judge. I didn't say what? it was illegal. It's not proven yet. I said it, it has to do with the Fourth Amendment and compliance with the letter of the law, which some Proving people don't Proving something is different than it being illegal, an illegal process. Everything yep. up to now has been squeaky clean, legal. 
No one has been indicted, right? That's right. That's right. So all we have are 25 or 30 mysterious boxes. Please, please. Yep. All we have are 25 or 30 mysterious boxes. Why did one of Trump's attorneys apparently sign a document to the um, uh, National Archive claiming that all the classified material had been returned, and then we now know that it hadn't been? Well, that's uh, a question to be resolved in court or proven. They, he did return the boxes, and they, the, um, the archives kept coming up with more documents. But I would like to talk about what the possibility of what documents they're trying yeah. to get. Well, see, you didn't hear my early part of the show where I actually speculated wildly on why this suddenly is causing a problem now. Oh, I did hear it. I, I came, well, I actually came in 45 minutes in, but before David answer, uh, called in and asked so, such very pertinent questions, uh, there's an there's a investigator that I admire. He does really great work. His name is Daniel List. He goes by the dark journalist. He's done yeah, six I, hours, I know nine hours on this subject. And he and I both interviewed uh, the same man. His name was Robert Merritt. Robert Merritt was an informant for Richard Nixon, and Richard Nixon had a secret UFO file. Oh, this was the book in the wall. What's that? This was the secret book in the wall. Yeah, the secret book in the in the wall. Mr. Merritt was on my program three times, and I agreed to keep this story secret because he didn't want it let out. But when Trump was elected. He felt that this was the right time, so he went on uh, Daniel's show, The Dark Journalist, and revealed it. So it turns out that List called the archives, the archives called uh, the White House. Then somehow the CIA got wind of it, and they went in there and they removed it. They went in and scanned the library, and President Trump took the file, and he was reading it, and they said, Mr. President, you do not have authority or need to know. So I think he balked at that, and it may be one of those files. For the people who don't know, this, the story goes that Nixon, Nixon was in the Eisenhower administration as vice president, expected to be president in 1960, but JFK stole the election. And uh, the result is that Nixon had this file, his own secret file. He had copies made. He hid one in a book in the White House. He told Merritt about it. He took the other file, packed it in an envelope, told Merritt to take off his clothes in the, in the White House. He taped the file to his body, then had him put his clothes back on so that he could sneak it out so that he could get it to Henry Kissinger. So he gave Kissin, uh, him Kissinger's... Um, phone number he called up nancy kissinger answered the phone and he delivered it to uh nancy the fbi uh was not involved in this the secret service was aware of it the cia came in they grabbed the file it may be that trump made a copy of that file secondly the other hypothesis uh from the dark journalist is that it does have to do with ufo files and tesla technology because john trump was Trump's uncle, and he was a genius at MIT, and he was the guy that got to go through all of Tesla's files after mm -hmm. the FBI grabbed them. When Tesla died, the Hotel New Yorker, they went in, gangbusters, they took everything, and they they turned it over to uh, John Trump, 
So special Trump files was- seem to run in the Trump family, and we are at the bottom of the hour. So don't go anywhere. This is this could get really interesting because Robert, you and I are kind of thinking in the same direction here. I just have okay. one question: if it has to do with special access programs and ETs and mm-hmm. what's really on the moon and all that, why yes. did Trump wait until he was no longer in a position of power to do anything? Yeah. Well, we'll discuss that when oh, you come no, back. You have to exactly. We have to wait till the bottom, the real bottom of the hour. So, everybody, just kind of hang out where you are. Um, I'll press the right buttons here and do this. Here we are. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We have Robert Morningstar waiting on the line. And he's kind of thinking along the same lines that I'm thinking, is that nobody really gave a damn about this uh, 30-some boxes of stuff that uh, the president took from the White House when he left. Uh, and blaming the GSA is not is not copacetic because uh, they didn't pack the boxes. They didn't direct what was in the boxes. They were merely the hands, maybe. That's going to be a fascinating story. But what if recently, in the last year and a half, somebody kind of got around to, well, what were some of these documents? And, oh, my God, do they cover the key things that the government, the deep state, has vowed to go to the grave before they will release, which includes – extraterrestrials, hyperdimensional technology, um, the way to cancel the effects of nuclear weapons, ultimate infinite energy to make everybody on planet Earth, all 7 billion people, richer than even Trump thinks that he is. Is that what he was really sitting on? And then again, if he's sitting on it now, and he kept it in the basement at Mar-a-Lago, why didn't he use or reveal or play these cards when he was president of the United States? Answers, maybe, when we return. Well, we're having another night of glitches here on the other side of midnight. I press play, and a file which should be playing is not playing. So we're going to kind of go past this uh, break at the bottom of the hour. You know what we need. We need more supporters. We need more listeners. We need funding because we're going to be coming up to a stunning campaign built around the Artemis Project and what uh, NASA may or may not reveal 
in the form of three missions. Remember, there are three spacecraft en route to the moon, uh, two already going, and one about to leave next week, all of which could reveal everything in a flash of HD reality. So back to Robert Morningstar, who was sitting there waiting with bated breath to talk about what could be in the boxes in Mar-a-Lago. Go for it. Oh, I know what I have to do. Sorry about that. Eh, too many switches No Buck Rogers, right? So if you like Buck Rogers on the weekends with Richard, please support his show. Okay. Now, with regard to the boxes, before I get into those contents, I'd like to say I am not, I am somewhat disappointed with President Trump for two reasons. One is he broke the law while he was in office. Secondly, he was uh, too quick to approve a vaccine that had not been tested, and the consequences of a vaccine that doesn't work are really terrible. People are dropping all over the world from something called sudden adult death syndrome. Fourteen doctors in Canada who took their fourth booster shot between the ages of 27 and 52 have dropped dead in the last month. The vaccine doesn't work. It was a big mistake. They should have tested it more thoroughly. As far as the biggest mistake of President Trump's administration, of of the executive, he broke the law when he did not declassify all the JFK assassination files because the law stipulated that 25 years from the time that that law was passed, all the documents would be released. And when the day came, he held on to over 300 of those. Judge Napolitano took him to task for it. And Trump said to him, if you'd read what I've read, you'd understand why I can't declassify them. And that goes to the heart of the deep state. Because, you know, the story's out in the open. Everybody knows the CIA killed President Kennedy. The FBI covered up the the dastardly deed. I mentioned the FBI framed Oswald. Oswald was there in Dallas as an informant for the FBI and working directly under Robert Kennedy and the Department of Justice. Do we know whether that picture in front of the depository was George Bush? Has that been oh, I believe uh, there's more than one, Richard. You know, as you know, I am considered one of the one of the experts on the JFK assassination. There are pictures of George Bush, not only George Bush, George W. Bush as a teenager in a bomber jacket, blue jeans, and sneakers. He was there too. Those pictures are, you know, among in the JFK circle. So I think that was his biggest mistake, and that and that may be. Since he didn't declassify them, if he took them, then they could be there, and they are a threat to the very existence and continuation of the deep state. So let's see what's up there. Can I but go back to but, remote but, but, viewing? Hang, hang, on, hang on, hang on. If, okay. if he didn't declassify what the whole world was waiting for and under law was perfectly legal, what was his excuse? I mean, do, do we know he really did talk to Napolitano? 
Well, we you can hear Napolitano, he, he said it. He said, I asked him why he didn't declassify him, and he said, Trump said to me, if you'd read what I'd read, you'd know why I couldn't declassify them. And I'll tell you, I do know what uh, some of those documents are. They, de- they deal with the work of uh, George Juanitas, who was a CIA uh, manager of the anti-Castro uh, Cuban activities against, uh, well, against Castro. You know, the the Cubans in, in Miami, they mm-hmm. were really, they hated Kennedy. And they continued to attack Cuba even after Kennedy had made his deal with Khrushchev. And he was afraid, you know, I told Khrushchev we weren't going to do this anymore. But in April of 1963, Operation 40, these rogue CIA agents, they attacked Cuba and they blew up the uh, Hess refinery there. So he was afraid that they were going to trip another nuclear war. So Kennedy he, told... He, he, he being what? Kennedy? Ken, Kennedy told the FBI, look, these guys have gone rogue and I want you to bring them in. And who he was calling to be brought in was Operation 40 and George H.W. Bush. George H.W. Bush was the leader, the commander of the Bay of Pigs invasion. He's the one who funded it. He he also bought the ships. He renamed them. He renamed them Houston after his hometown where he established his business. And the other named Barbara after his wife. And that was the same name of his airplane in World War II. And unbeknownst to everyone, the operation was called Operation Zapata, which was the name of his offshore company. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to talk about the remote viewing because, Richard, on the night that you had your heart attack, I had a dream about you, and I saw you racing away in a very bright red heart-shaped car that sped away from me, and I tried to catch up with you, and then I cut another corner, and I was running through this, this not New York City, city, and I tried to get a shortcut, and I saw the car go by, and it said, this might be the last time you ever see Richard Hoagland. And the next day, I got a call from Gordon, much who told me that you had been stricken and I called the hospital. So remote viewing is reality. It is science. Um, I heard you put off uh, Barbara Honecker when you said that's not science. It is science. I have the documents from the CIA that prove it from Stanford and the research that was done there. And I'll just briefly explain to you how it works. No, 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 no. Hang on. I can't let, you know, misimpressions hang out there. Okay. Yeah. I I obviously think remote viewing is real. I said okay. personal experience, communication with someone who ostensibly has died three and a half oh, years yeah. ago. That's that not cannot remote viewing. Prove. That's not, remote, that's not viewing. remote viewing. No. But you said to, to uh, Barbara Honecker, that's not science. But as I said, I have the papers in hand. What was the context? She brought up something that she said that something was proven by remote viewing. You know, it's just two weeks ago you had the show. But that's not the important thing. I just want to explain briefly. The CIA did tremendous work at Stanford University, and I'm in contact with the people who ran those experiments, including Russell Targ and Hal Putoff. And yeah, I have so, the so I, I was there. Remember, I was there. I had David uh, – no, Edward May offered yeah. to interview uh, – interview, to remote view Sidonia back when we had the independent Mars mm-hmm. investigation – uh, at SRI, and he found there is current technology still functioning 
at Sedonia, which is totally in line with our totally independent research. So if I said something that sounded to you negative with Barbara, either your attention wandered or there was a totally different context because I have known that remote viewing is real for decades. Okay. As Warner Wolf used to say, let's go to the videotape. But I want to share this with you. I was on a conference with Russell Targ and Jack Sarfati. And Russell Targ, speaking about um, remote well, by the viewing... By Russell might, might be a, a guest in the near future. On oh, I hope so. He, he's brilliant. He, he made, you know Ingo I Swan. Ingo Swan was a talent I, of I, all of I met him decades ago at Cape Canaveral mm-hmm. with, a, with, with a very... Fit, well, with Ed Mitchell and mm-hmm. it, Ed Mitchell's rather out-there wife at the time, and a brilliant Russian poet, Yevtushenko. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we had a hell of a time. Yeah. Continue. Well, listen to what Russell said in this conference with me and Jack Sarfati. He said that the most talented person of all of their remote viewers was Ingo Swan, and that Ingo Swan had the ability to get into a trance instantly, and be orbiting Jupiter faster than the speed of light. So it didn't take him 54 minutes to get to Jupiter. When he put himself into a trance, he was there. Well, of course and one not. of the it's things Ingo Swan did, it's not, did EM. Is it's he not named the ring. He said that Jupiter had a ring, and they doubted yeah, it. And they found it many, many years later. When Pioneer found it, yeah, going past Jupiter for the yeah. first time. But that's a brilliant, uh, it's an amazing thing he said. Remote viewing operates faster than the speed of light. And it has to do with shutting down the left brain. Robert, when I start talking, please stop. Because I have something important to interject. Yes, the remote viewing, you know, channeling, all this stuff has nothing to do with electromagnetism and the limitations of the speed of light or the artificial limitations of Einstein's relativity, which basically was a, construct designed to put us in a box reality yeah. is so much bigger and going back to trump if he yep. basically did say that to napolitano it mm-hmm. has nothing to do with bush and the cia and all this crap it has to do with reality which we're never supposed to know about remember john alexander being yelled mm-hmm. at by the guy at the dod who said you're not oh, supposed yeah, to yeah. Know that you die yeah, it yeah. has to do with our place in the universe and in multiple dimensions, and it will shake the foundations of reality. So even Donald Trump obviously could be convinced, no, it's not time yet. It's all about timing. Mm. Timing. By the way, there's going to be a meeting in Las, Las Vegas with John Alexander and uh, a bunch of thanatologists. That's mm-hmm. the word. You know, people who yeah. are it's about time. studying death. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if we are in a bubble mm-hmm. and when we die, we normally just came back and now we don't because something interfered with it, mm-hmm. a whole basis of reality has been – we've been lied to for God knows how long, hundreds of thousands if not millions of years. Humanity is not what it thinks it is, and this information that we're trying to get out, which actually because of Artemis may have a chance – we're on the edge of something stunning. So, yes, I can see why Trump would have been convinced that this was not the time for mere mortals to tread where angels do not want to go yet. And, of course, the UFO file is a very, very big element in all of this because President Kennedy, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, 
was the letter he wrote to NASA and say CIA, all the, all the bigwigs, uh, on November 12th, uh, ordering them to begin preparations for cooperation with Russians on a trip to the moon and lunar exploration. But yes, to, and look what that would UFO information with the Russians because he was afraid that the UFOs were trying to bring the United States and Russia or the Soviet Union into nuclear war. They were playing games with both our countries. They would race in with fleets of UFOs at at um, hypersonic speeds over Canada or over Siberia and make the other country think, oh, my God, the United States is attacking us. Oh, my God, the Russians have launched their ICBMs. Then they'd stop right over Canada, dead stop, and zip straight up into outer space. And so the Air Force gave them a name, Fast Walkers. That was one of the code names uh, for UFOs. The mm-hmm. other thing that the audience may not know is the first really critical, the uh, first crisis regarding UFOs uh, that President Kennedy faced came on February 2nd, 12 days into his administration. A huge fleet of UFOs was picked up flying east to west over NATO countries. And this caused alarms, and uh, going to DEFCON 2, they were afraid the Russians had launched a a blitz. The UFO fleet went across Western Europe, Germany, France, over Britain, made a turn to the north over the North Sea, then went over Scandinavia, then went back over the Soviet Union and disappeared into outer space. So President Kennedy was really, really worried about this uh, situation and the prospect of triggering an accidental nuclear war between the Soviet Union and the United States. So all of those things are all bundled up in what we were just saying is the, the UFO file or and or the JFK file. And the deep state dreads being exposed as uh, liars for 75 years. You know, this peekaboo disclosure that they came out with 2017, again, Trump released the Tic Tacs. And then they're ta- talking about 144 cases since 2005. Mm-hmm. Well, what about the 13,000 cases since 1947? What about the uh, F-89s that disappeared over Lake Superior in 1953 when they went to intercept UFOs? So there's what a lot. What about all the incredible display of force over the Capitol in 1952 that even got Truman involved in the cover-up? Yes, and you know our friend Wilbur, uh, Wilbur Allen, he took that film and he enhanced it, and you can see the fleet of UFOs passing behind the Capitol. He did yeah, a brilliant job, a 16-millimeter film that was shot of it, and it was kind of dark, but Wilbur, who was actually trained uh, in CIA technology, he took the, the, um, the film, the 16-millimeter film, and his technique is remarkable. He's, he mentioned it on my show, so I don't think he cares if I say it. He took the film and he exposed it to microwaves, and the microwave exposure enhanced, amplified the images of the UFOs, and you can find it on online. And there is the Capitol in all its glory and all its beauty. The other thing that... Uh, you remember it, the date when the major apparition in 52 took place? July, uh, July 25th and 26th. July uh, 20th. It started on the 20th. It started on the 20th, but the big the big flap when uh, they surrounded the interceptors 
for those who really want to see this uh, story really well depicted, there is a movie called UFO, made in 1956, with the full-hearted cooperation of the United of States the Air Force. Yeah. yeah, UFO, the true story of flying saucers, the biography of Al Chop, and you can find it on Amazon. It's brilliant. and It's well, they, very well done, very authoritative, beautiful. and it's beautiful. got unique footage in it, yes. Yeah, and, and it's got the real people, and they yep. do the Thomas Mantell incident at Godman Field. They have uh, the captains of the American Airliners, uh, American Airlines Airliners that... Uh, were paced and surrounded uh, by UFOs. Uh, the real people who took the original uh, f- uh, footage, uh, Nicholas Mariana and uh, uh, Mr. Newhouse, the warrant officer of the U.S. Navy, the Utah film and the Montana films, they are remarkable. And you know what? In analyzing the Montana film, I found the same fingerprints that doctored the Zapruder film using almost identical techniques. And I can name the person who did it. His name was Dr. Luis Alvarez, the man who oh. discovered the iridium Walter layer. Alvarez's, uh, uh, Walter Alvarez's father. father, Luis Alvarez. And Luis Where? Alvarez was the guy who took meson detectors into the Great Pyramid and tried to figure out what was happening with cosmic rays, and they can never reach a conclusion because it's a different physics. I wanted to say one word about the mind control and the silencing of people who work in government. One is the non-disclosure agreement, which threatens you with imprisonment and uh, worse. You know, sometimes it's death, threat of death for revealing the cosmic top secret. But I'd like to say this MK Ultra mind control program in NASA was not something that was imposed on the astronauts. They volunteered for it. And I got this from an Air Force captain and a former FBI agent whose father worked for NASA developing the space suits. His father was taken aside and told, listen, your knowledge is extremely precious, and the Russians might want to snatch you and make you talk. They torture you and make you talk. We have a technology that if you agree to it, we would seal that information and they'd never be able to get it out of you. So his father volunteered to have this uh, mind control and MK Ultra technology experiment done on him so that he would voluntarily be silenced. And I had the experience, direct experience with Edgar Mitchell when before 200 people I asked him the question, can you describe for me the internal structure of the crater Eukert? And he went from a totally affable, genial college professor. Uh, he snapped his heels together. He stood up at attention. He snapped his arms to the side. He glared at me, and he screamed, No! Before 200 people at the Explorer Club. And then he looked around and caught himself. You know, it was a reflex. And he saw 200 people. And I went, wow, what did he say? Mm. He said to me, the mission profile did not call for that, so I don't have to answer that. And <laughs> <laughs> there you have it. So, um, well, of course, thing, we, have, we, we have no video um, anyway. Yeah, well, I think the Explorer Club probably has a video of that. Have you ever and tried actually, to get it? No, I did. Since he didn't answer my question, I was really pissed a little bit. So I, I waited to be the last guy online, and when I shook hands with him, 
I shook hands, and instead of letting go of his hand, I held on to it. <laughs> and then I sent my chi down my arm into his arm and up through his arm and up to his head. And I said, you're, you know, you have that knowledge in there. It belongs to the American people. We paid for it, and I want to know it. So I just thought that. So then, you know, he got uncomfortable. I finally let go of his arm. When I came home, I was thrilled to have met Edgar Mitchell. And I went uh, into the bathroom to wash up, and I closed my eyes for a moment, and I saw the most glorious vision of his space capsule descending with uh, the crater Eukert going by me on uh, my right-hand side. He was the co-pilot. And I knew that he had seen it because when they landed in Fra Mauro as they made their descent, they had to have passed the crater Eukert. Oh, they had to cross right over it. Exactly. Now, that whole... That whole uh, uh, power descent took like almost 10, 12 minutes. Yep. So he had a, a good long time to contemplate it. And um, so anyway, um, remote viewing is real. And I'll just say, you have to s practically put your left brain into a semi-sleep to allow the right brain to access the universe. Because the left brain is a filter, and it filters what it allows the right brain to uh, access. So what the CIA and Russell Targ and all of them found through the Monroe Technique and Transcendental Meditation is that meditation and controlling your breath and your blood flow will create a standing wave in your vascular system. When that wave gets to the brain, the, the left brain can be put into quiescence and the right brain is allowed to travel, to, ex to access universal knowledge. So, so let's, go back, let's, go, let's go back to uh, Marilargo and the boxes and what's in them and yeah. why Trump didn't act on this when he was president. Because we've now known through a lot of discussion and, 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 you know, the last five years of experience, the president under the Constitution has extraordinary powers. Yeah. Why would he wait till he was no longer president to to try to purloin these boxes into something that would be leveraged. I mean, why, what did he take and why did he take it and why did he wait? Well, I think he took whatever he took, perhaps as an insurance policy now, but I think he was afraid then of going to war with the deep state. I think that he was afraid of the deep state. He knows that the deep state killed President Kennedy and uh, a whole slew of other people, including Martin Luther King and well, Robert Kennedy. They were Kennedy. able to get away with it because nobody in those days imagined a deep state now half the country understands the concept of a deep state yeah it's, i remember the first time i heard it on uh, the news and it was um sean hannity who uttered those words back in 2016 i said my friend what i don't know what he said he said deep state actually it was joseph farrell it was joseph farrell on my show that uttered the first words deep state but we won't yeah. go back. well i'm talking about mass media you know a lot of people and you heard. Think they we used to say it a long time before, but to hear it on, in cable news, that was a big thing. But I think that Trump was afraid of uh, repercussions, and perhaps he didn't want to destroy the deep state. He was trying to make a, comprom a compromise and work within, quote-unquote, the system. But the system See, what I didn't understand uh, last week when Barbara and I had the conversation, and now I think I might understand it more, and we've got... Four minutes till the end of the uh, program. Can you believe three hours has gone by? Yes. Neville, sleep peacefully. <laughs> um, I don't understand why he didn't destroy all the documents and put everything on digital in the cloud 
and I know he doesn't do email, and I know he's not digitally savvy, but he can hire anybody, so he could have dispersed this so he would have ultimate leverage. They'd never be able to track down everything, but the way it is, he kept them in physical boxes to be picked up by the... Come on, that's so dumb. So why would he have to keep the physical boxes? Because it's the only way he could or can prove authenticity. Yeah, the, the hard copy is the ultimate. Is the truth. only you know, anybody can uh, document uh, exactly, doctor exactly. a digital a digital copy. So I answered my own question after thinking about it every day for yep. the last week, and he had to physically have it. So the fact that he had it physically and he had to turn it back, God knows what's important in there and why was he waiting. This is the thing that I yep. find so mysterious because being out of the White House and being president. There is no comparison. He had all the power he needed to confront when he was president. He has none now except power of public opinion. So why did he make a strategic, catastrophic decision? I think, as I said, for as an insurance policy. And, uh, he had no two. insurance unless he dispersed it. And he well, didn't disperse how do we know it. that he oh. didn't? <laughs> how do we know that he didn't? He's because he can't great. prove it. Because he can't prove it now. I don't with know. the documents, we're waiting until Thursday to see what uh, what comes out with the um, the redact. Well, yeah, I, you and I agree on one thing on this. We've only seen the beginning of the soap opera. We're nowhere yeah. near the end, and somehow, and we've got literally less than a minute. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen next week? By the way, I'm going to predict that the Artemis mission will be delayed by yeah. two days till September second. Yeah. You know why? No, why? Because then it will be a 39-day mission, twice 19.5. That's great. Well, I'll just say I do hope you vote for uh, Liz Cheney. I'll be very happy with that. Hmm. Okay. Um, <laughs> our our okay. AI lady is telling me that we're literally running out of time. Robert, thank you so much. You're we welcome. Will do this it, again. Was fun. it was really And fun. we will do it soon. Thank okay. you. Take care. Okay, Bye-bye. guys. Um, that's it. We literally have spent three hours talking to fascinating folks. Everybody was a player. Everybody had really amazing stuff. And Neville slumped on, obviously. Tonight we were supposed to have this show and not the one that we had planned. Now, tomorrow night, remember, I've got Chandra. We're going to talk about major uh, interesting cosmological things how Webb can finally prove the fact that we're not alone in the universe if they let us know. So tune in tomorrow night, same time, same bat channel. And until then, remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.